Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 55 hours, 47 minutes. Apollo 13 presently at uh, 177,861 nautical miles away. Velocity now reading uh, 3,263 feet per second. We've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, I uh, have a shaft and trunnion okay. for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Okay. Stand by. Houston, say again, please. Yes, sir. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Okay, stand by, 13. We're looking at it. Okay, uh, right now, uh, Houston, the uh, voltage is... Uh, Everybody, welcome to Crane Kick Commentaries. Today, in case you haven't guessed it, we are doing Apollo 13. I am joined today by my friend Keaton Beyer, as always, and today we are joined by our special guest, University of Toronto, a PhD physics student, Felix Frontini. Hello, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, uh, Felix. Yeah. Uh, do you want to summarize for us quickly? Uh, what is this movie about? Well, I think it it, it pretty much is self-explanatory, I guess. Um, it's about the Apollo 13 ill-fated mission. Uh, well, I mean, I guess partially ill-fated. Uh, the Apollo 13 mission in, in April 1970 that launched and uh, had a uh, fatal error on board um, the command module. And they had to uh, abort the moon landing, but they managed to bring the astronauts back alive using some uh, sheer luck and uh, human ingenuity. Very well put. Very yeah. well put. The first thing I just want to get out of the way is uh, 
I just want to ask you guys, um, either of you tear up at all? Definitely at the end, yeah. During re-entry where it's, you know, past the no, uh, no landing module has ever been dark for more than three minutes and they're, they're approaching four minutes and then uh, yeah. finally you see, you see the parachute land and every, you know, the crowd goes wild and, uh, you know, yeah, when start the to jerk my out, tears yeah. and all that, you know, so... Yeah. Also, when uh, Ed Harris gives me the uh, Ed Harris playing Gene Krantz gives me the cue to cry when he starts crying. Oh, dude, he's so good in this movie. He is. It's excellent. so fucking good. Didn't he get nominated for an Academy Award? Uh, he did. Yeah, he was nominated for supporting actor, I believe. Yeah, he deserved. Wait, um, did Tom Hanks get nominated? Not for this don't movie. I don't think, think so. No. no. Yeah. They're just like, okay, Tom, you've you've had enough by now. Okay, just give someone else a <laughs> <Yeah>. chance. <laughs> I mean, we're all pretty big fans of Tom Hanks here, right? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Tom Hanks. Yeah. Forrest Gump is definitely up there in my favorite movies. Well, yeah, Forrest Gump would have been the the year right before this movie came out. So I wonder, uh, I mean, how big was Forrest Gump when it came out? Like, how big? I mean, I guess he'd had a lot of other movies that were huge, but uh, by this point, so he was probably already an international star. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fucking big, man. That's a movie. He he became like like iconic level when he won two Oscars in a row. Yeah. I don't know that um, story. The second one was Forrest Gump. I'm blanking on the first one. It was the one League of Their before. Own. No, no. Philadelphia. That's what it was. Philadelphia. 1993 and 1994. There you go. Ooh, you know you're doing a good job when you're in a movie with Denzel Washington and you get the Academy Award. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I I cried definitely at the reentry scene. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty big one. The other time that got me, that is like I'm like, I'm I'm not ashamed, obviously, but it's more just like because of it was pure corn vibe, and they were just that's what they were trying to do. Is like when uh when they go to the the retirement home to tell Jim Lovell's mother that there's that there's been a problem. Uh, and she's like, don't worry, you know, my, my boy Jimmy could, could pilot a washing machine, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and, and she's like, at first she's like all, she's like upset because she's like, oh, but he's not going to get to go to the moon. And that was like heartbreaking because, you know, she like, she really wants him to achieve that. Anyway, that part, that part got me. I teared up, teared up a bit there. I think also the, the situation where uh, uh, Jim Lovell's wife was having to, to, to tell the son who was, just in bed and she had to go up and tell him that uh that there had been a problem because he was asking you know there was a lot of people over at the house and he didn't understand what was going on she had to uh, she had to break the news to him that there was like an issue on board that i don't know if i teared up so much but it was, it was that was definitely a tough moment you know yeah i don't know i feel like i tear up about space flight in general yeah i well <laughs> i just wanted to that brings me i wanted to mention the, just quickly the uh spacex launch the other the other uh, oh that was amazing that that was so yeah. good yeah i i teared up during that i launch. yeah i definitely teared up when they were strapped into the capsule and like that's just one of those situations where i just can't you, you'd have to imagine you'd be i mean i know they they train for the stress and they they train to be able to stay calm but irregardless right you're it's the first human uh manned launch of a spacex rocket and yeah you're you you don't really know at the end of the day right so that's 
That's yeah. a lot of uncertainty. That would I would you know I mean I mean house. Like, I would probably calm. break out the depends for sure. <laughs> mm. uh, they their suits are equipped for that, aren't they? They are. They are. They do have the. Uh... There you go. So so no worries really. No worries. Yes. Um, but no that that was that was amazing. How cool astronauts manage to stay in general is just amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're facing whatever, three, four Gs, you know, yeah. uh, being overly stressed and having a high heart rate isn't really something you can afford. Uh, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> it's an actual risk. Astronauts are a different breed altogether. Like, particularly, yeah. like, the uh, the the uh, Apollo and its prior program astronauts. Yeah. Those guys are, like, I mean, to... And, to to an extent, like all astronauts, you have to be a little bit of a different breed to want to strap yourself to a fucking you know rocket and blast yourself off the face of the earth. Like that's like insane. But uh, yeah, I I definitely know what you mean though in terms of talking about a, an Apollo and then because um you think about it now and I was kind of thinking of this in in relation to the new SpaceX launch actually that. You know, there's a lot of safety testing that gets done nowadays, and at the end of the day, safety is the first priority. They canceled the first attempt window because of there was too much wind, and they had to do extensive testing of. For I the thought space it was because launch. of yeah. uh, the the uh, electric fields. I I could be wrong about that. I'm not totally sure. I know it was weather related, but that there's so much there's so much safety testing that has to go on. You know, uh, in pad abort launch test and and etc. Um, that, I mean, even if at the end of the day you're putting someone up on it, there's a lot of that's been done. But thinking back to the Apollo missions, I mean, you know, I love NASA, but at the time, uh, safety was not really the first priority. The priority was really winning the space race. And they were... Yes, they definitely didn't want to have one of their rockets blow up because that would have been no, embarrassing. No, but, but they did start sending pretty people up into space pretty like pretty immediately so they had a well-designed rocket but but, uh back to the spacex one for a thing like one of the things that amazes me about watching this is that like the spacex the new dragon capsule basically flies itself pretty much but the the level of accuracy they had to have while doing the apollo missions like when jack swaggart has to dock with the uh with the um the lunar module like, terrible design by the way horrible hor- like who designed that what the fact that you have to separate from the um the service module turn around go behind it and then redock with the lunar module whoever came up with that needs to be you know smacked upside no head. i believe that there was a I believe there's a reason for it, and it had to do with the way that they're actually packed inside the Saturn V. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, like, aerodynamically, you don't want to have the lunar module at the top, but still, I mean, uh, you probably could have come up with something a little better than that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, right off the bat, a pretty complex maneuver to have to, like, you know, make or break the mission. If you don't need to, to, to do that, why would you? Um... That's what, that's basically what the whole, like, and it will get to this. That's like what the whole Gemini, um, right? The goal of the Gemini space program was. And the interim here, uh, we're starting to uh, go ahead and button up the tunnel again. Roger. Yeah, that that jolt uh, must have rocked uh, uh, the sensor uh, on uh, 
velocity now in O2, a quantity 2, it uh, was oscillating uh, down around 20 to 60 percent. Now it's full scale high again. Right. I think we should just, you know, lay out um, what we're going to talk about a little bit. Like, this film is, is incredibly fascinating. It's so naturally dramatic uh, that you don't really need any artistic license to tell this story. Yeah. No. Right. No, this... And there's, like, there's so many little details. Oh, absolutely. That, like, it's going to be impossible for us to cover everything. But that in itself is a daunting challenge as a filmmaker. Mind you, you don't have to come up with a creative story, but to do the story justice is uh, a huge pressure in of itself. Oh, yeah, no, Ron Howard did some insane things to get this movie done. It is a testament. It is a testament to Ron Howard. Um, he even said, like, going into the... Into the making of the film he was kind of, at first he was concerned with um concerned with making like a good hollywood story you know he wasn't as concerned with the details and then apparently like tom hanks like kind of pushed him to get more involved into like the actual real story and like look at more details and apparently he said after that kind of conversation he kind of shifted his focus to like authenticity tom hanks noted huge nerd right. there you go saving the day once again <laughs> Alright, so first we're going to be talking about um, the director, Ron Howard, a little bit, uh, and like his career. And then we're going to look at um, uh, a guy named Al Reinert, one of the, the screenwriters for this film, and his story is fascinating. Then we're going to talk about the real Apollo program a bit, and the events that led up to Apollo 13. And then, as I understand it, Jake, uh, you're going to be taking us on an enlightening journey through uh, prop and set designs, and some special effects, hopefully. Uh, yeah, we will definitely be talking about that. As well as um, NASA's involvement yep. in the production. NASA, not to mention the Navy. <laughs> yeah, not to mention the Navy, yeah. And because <laughs> you're a bit of a stickler, uh, you're going to talk about some of the inaccur inaccuracies. Yes, and I will talk about the, the inaccuracies. Few, the few artistic liberties and embellishments that they, that they took and made in the film. Absolutely true. Uh, so let's talk about Ron Howard for a little bit here. Do you guys know anything about Ron Howard? It, it, the name rings the bell a lot, but I, I don't, I don't, I gotta I got say I don't. He's done a lot of movies that I like. Such oh, yeah, as? What, what movies? Well, I mean, this one. Uh, I mean, Willow was not great, but... Uh... I'm sorry, Willow is an amazing film, you take that back. <laughs> We'll we'll have to have you back when we do that one. Willow, change me back to my human form. In my opinion, uh, Ron Howard is best known for producing and narrating uh, the greatest sitcom of all time, Arrested Development. Right. Ah. Right. I completely forgot that. Um, he was born in 1954. Both his parents were aspiring actors at the time. Okay. Uh, his father, Rand Howard, you've probably seen. Yes, he um, shows up in Ron Howard movies occasionally. A lot. And his yeah. mom, Jean Spiegel, who I know you've seen. Yes. <laughs> um, and his younger brother, Clint Howard. Clint Howard, great actor. He's also in Apollo 13. He is. A little bit um, of nepotism. Well, Ron Howard said that, like, he always made his, like, apparently he made his mom audition three times for that really? role. Like, he, he never gave, like, 
he never just gave them roles out of so he said so he ne- I mean, you're you sure he never gave clint a role like are we sure <laughs> i mean he he definitely gave him the roles but maybe he's just got a little bit of a sadistic uh side where he just wanted yeah. he's like oh no you got an addition yeah so, so this this kind of brings us to to the best fact of the podcast the best fact we're going to talk about today so and considering things are going to get you know we're going to get technical probably um, this this is the most fun fact for sure and this didn't require any research at all this I noticed while I was watching the movie mm-hmm. his father Rance Howard is in Apollo 13 yep. do you remember what role he played was he the priest he was the priest correct yeah. I, had, I had no guess <laughs> he, he is tiny role it's like I don't even know if he has a line he just like uh, well pats, he's sitting on the couch Yeah, he just like pats Marilyn Lovell on, on, the, on the back very, very expressively, mm-hmm. he was trying to get his screen time. Throughout his career, he he did hundreds of roles. So this this isn't yeah. that surprising. But throughout his career, he had like upwards. Well, he had ten roles that I could find that mm-hmm. were listed, that were either priests or preachers or what have you. So, okay, that's a lot. Uh, okay. Apparently, but I saw him in Apollo thirteen. I was like, wait a second, who is that guy? He looks familiar. I've seen this priest before. Mm. And you know what movie? Uh, I was remembering him from. What would that be? Walk hard. <laughs> oh my God! You're right. <laughs> like the the devil's got hands, and therefore he uses them for holding. Yeah. <laughs> for, you know what he uses them for? Holden. Holden. That's really funny. Then he gets punched in the face. That's extremely yeah. great movie. Funny. We're gonna have to do that movie at some point. It's fantastic. He got it. He got by in enough Ron Howard movies playing priests that he. Uh, he got deep enough into the niche that he was a standalone actor on it by yeah, his own right. Absolutely. So as you know, Ron Howard was a was a he was a child actor. Well, as you said, you knew Jake. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a child actor. His first role um, was he was like two years old, and he was in a, a film with his father called Frontier Woman. Yeah. Which was like some fifties B movie of some sort. I assume he wasn't the Frontier Woman. No, I don't think. I so. would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Um, after that, he uh, he went on to star as Opie in the Andy Griffith Show. I don't know if you're familiar with the Andy Griffith Show. Not hugely, but uh, yeah, I'm aware of it. And then he got his uh, um, first real good role in a film. He played uh, Steve Bolander in uh, George Lucas's American Graffiti, uh, which is kind of interesting. But then he got his uh, his kind of defining acting role, which was Richie Cun- Cunningham on Happy Days. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Happy Days. That's, right, okay. That's gotta now be... Now I'm starting to connect yeah, the dots. Yeah, that's where I've seen it before. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, he, yeah. he's got a familiar face, and he's been in he's been in a lot of other stuff as well. His, uh, the first film he directed, a movie called Grand Theft Auto. Movie? Yeah, it was a movie. It was an... Yeah, not to be confused with the uh, popular movie. Yeah, the, uh, I believe it's 19... What? Or, or late... Do you, have you heard the name uh, Roger Corman? I have not. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, famous low-budget filmmaker. Okay. He gave a lot of people, like, a start. Right. Corman was known as, like, the B-movie king in, like, the, yeah. the 50s and 60s. And he gave, like, yeah. a lot of famous directors their first products, like Martin Scorsese. Yeah, like, like Martin Scorsese, yeah, yeah. Francis uh, Ford Coppola, James Cameron. Okay. And, you know. Yeah. Anyway, this guy, uh, Ron Howard knew this guy. He brought a, a script that he, had, that he had written with his father, Rance, to, to Corman. 
mm-hmm. and it was like, can you make my movie? And Corman was like, okay, if you act in this film called Eat My Dust, it's like a car chase comedy. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll let you direct some action sequences. Right. Um, so he was like, okay, sure, fine. I'll act in, the, I'll act in your movie. Um, and then Corman called up Howard and was like, okay, so you know when, when we made Eat My Dust... Um, one of the other, the, the second best title that we almost chose was Grand Theft Auto. So if you write us a film based on the title Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> we'll let you direct it. That's so random. That's like... Roger Corman, like, from what I know, he's like a really kind of strange guy. Like, uh, I mean, like, he did a lot of really, really strange things to try to just reduce the budget of films. Yeah, eccentric, eccentric guy. Yeah, yeah, cool guy though. He seems he seems cool. Yeah. So he gave Francis Ford Coppola his first break, eh? Yeah, and uh, Martin Scorsese. That's interesting. Francis Ford Coppola, most well known for being the uncle of one Nicolas Cage. Uh, I don't think that's what he's most well known it for. It definitely but, is. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. No, what that you're is. That's about. what he's. That's what it says. That's what it says on his Wikipedia page. Yep. Does it say that? Yep. No, I'm, okay, yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Uncle of uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. A.K.A. Nicolas Kim Coppola. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, some of the early early films that Ron Howard did were like comedy films. Right. He worked with like John Candy, and he did Parenthood. I don't know if you know that film like with uh, Steve Martin. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense coming off of um, like Happy Days, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and he did like uh, Gung Ho with Michael Keaton. Mm. Okay. Um. And then he started doing like some more serious right. serious roles by like you know the early nineties. He did a backdraft, like a right. firefighter film. Oh yeah, he also made I forgot he made Splash. Yeah, Splash. Fucking Tom Hanks. Underrated movie. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen that one. It's like but it's like a love story with it's early Tom Hanks film, like eighty four or something. It's like he falls in love with like a mermaid. Yeah. Oh, okay, actually, that does ring some bells. I might have, I, I feel like I maybe see, saw, like, half of it on cable late at night or something like that. So to just put quickly back into to, uh, to Apollo 13, um, Ron Howard and producer uh, Brian Grazer uh, teamed up, and they, they made a production studio that's, like, super famous. It's called Imagine Films. You've probably seen one of their films. They did, uh, like, Parenthood, Kindergarten Cop, Backdraft, they did Doors, they did A Beautiful Mind, Eight Mile, Frost Nixon. Eight Mile kind of stands out there, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it kind of does, doesn't it? Great film. Um, in 1995, there was, like, you know the book that the movie's based on, that Apollo 13 is based off? Lost Moon? Yeah. It was being shopped around Hollywood before it was even published. Really? Yeah, like, they had a book deal, and they had, like, this... Ten- 10-page transcript that they were shopping around Hollywood looking for a movie deal before the book was even published. Anyway, a kind of interesting fact is a guy named Michael Bostick was a, um, uh, uh, like a script reader at Imagine Films, and uh, Michael Bostick is the son of Jerry Bostick, and Jerry Bostick was a flight dynamics officer who worked on flight protocols for Apollo 13. Weird certain But this guy, yeah. anyway, this guy... This guy got Imagine Films the the transcript and they and they and they bid on the film and they got it. I actually read that uh, while the script script was being uh, shopped around, that apparently Jim Lovett himself had like uh, he he had kind of picked out an actor that he wanted and that actor was Kevin Costner. But by I the time really? the but by the time the film actually got picked up, that that was kind of 
going out. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I would say that Kevin Costner definitely looks more like Jim Lovell yeah. than Tom Hanks does. That's why I heard that they were eyeing him. I didn't hear that about Jim Lovell. That's an interesting fact. I heard they were just eyeing Kevin Costner because he actually kind of looked like Jim Lovell. Yeah. But, I mean, Tom Hanks does such an incredible job yeah. doing that. And, like, one of the interesting things is I was listening to, like, um, some comedy, some commentary on the film by Jim and Marilyn Lovell. Okay. And according to Marilyn Lovell, Tom Hanks just, like, captures the mannerisms of Jim so perfectly. <laughs> that it's, like... Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I love Tom Hanks. Yeah. We should... Tom Hanks is, like, fucking awesome. Yeah, we should sorry. change. we should change the nature of this podcast to just a Tom Hanks podcast where we just talk about Tom Hanks movies and Tom Hanks. Every Tom Hanks movie? I mean, and that's... how great Tom Hanks is? I mean, you know, that can't be a bad choice. But apparently, at, at like, uh... Tom Hanks actually kind of chased down this film. He'd wanted to do uh, an Apollo 13 movie before the script was even being shopped around. So when he yeah. heard that it was yeah. around, he he uh, he cheetah chased it. Yeah, I mean Tom Hanks loves space and anything to do with space. Like it's it was smart work by his agent, I guess, because like yeah, he had mentioned to his agent that he wanted to make like space movie and like mm. Apollo 13. He was like, that would be a great film. Why hasn't anybody made that? Mm-hmm. So as soon as there yeah. was, like, a script around, his agent must have been like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what Tom's looking for. You know he's going to treat it seriously, right? You know? Yeah. Um... I mean, I was watching an interview with Tom Hanks when he was talking about making this movie and being on, like, the in the anti-gravity scenes, and he was, he just, he seemed so goddamn excited to be there. Like, getting to go into the zero-G and, like, uh, uh, he just seemed like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Like yeah, he wanted to be an astronaut apparently, and he was saying about like the the doesn't surprise me the fake launch sequence. He was like because and it was because that launch sequence was so realistic. Um, apparently, for a moment, almost like convinced himself he was actually this is what a good actor does, I guess, is able to do that. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, I feel like it would be hard not to convince yourself that like you were actually in space, especially when you're in that uh, that that diving plane doing the anti gravity scenes. Yeah, when you're so immersed. Yeah, we got a uh, main bus A undervolt now, too, Sean. Main A undervolt. It's reading about 25 and a half. Main B's reading zip right now. And uh, Houston, uh, Odyssey. Stand by one, Jim. Super interesting character we're going to talk about now is Al Reinert. Al Reinert. Um, he was one of the screenwriters. And in my opinion, he kind of set like the, the tone for the film in a lot of ways, not just in his writing. Um, he was, before he was a screenwriter, he was a journalist. Um, and before he was a journalist, he was a West Point dropout. Oh, really? There's a West Point dropout dropout who became a journalist because he got arrested for a marijuana from a marijuana possession. Hmm. When he was at West Point? No, this was after West Point. He was like okay. bumming around Houston, and he got arrested, and he was on uh, on probation, so he had to get uh, a real job. So he got like the worst job at like a newspaper, and kind of worked his way up. He was hired by William Broyles Jr., who is a Vietnam veteran. And he founded a, a, a publication called Texas Monthly. 
if you're familiar with the name Will Embroils Jr., it's because it's his co-writer on the film, Apollo 13. Really? Um, so they're both journalists, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, this guy, Al Reinert, was a real, real character. Like, apparently he was, like, for when he was writing for Texas Monthly, he was, like, impossible to pin down. And, um, like, he would always, like, shirk deadlines and, like, not answer the phone. Like, a real uh, Hunter S. Thompson type, sort of. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, apparently they had to, like, someone had to, like, tra- like, they were tracking him down the streets of Manhattan, like, calling informants on pay phones. And, like, it was all, like, pretty, you know. <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> But he was always a uh, he was always obsessed with NASA. Like his first article at Texas Monthly was called uh, "So Long Space Cowboys." Yeah, and it was like ni- 1973, so you know, kind of the decline of the uh, of the space program. You know, um, right. So he got really into he got really into the whole space program. He spent like eight years uh, meticulously interviewing astronauts and pouring over like thousands of hours of NASA footage and transcripts, like. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad life. Sounds pretty no, interesting. No, that doesn't sound... I mean, I spent some time reading NASA transcripts, uh, preparing for this, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, uh, NASA makes everything, that all their research, all their transcripts, etc., all, it all goes public eventually. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit funny, actually. Uh, it, they do make everything public, but they do give their own researchers the chance to have the first publishings. I, I worked a, a couple summers ago on a... A project with some atmospheric data from Mars, uh, which is from a NASA satellite, and uh, uh, we got, you know, we were working on it and doing some simulations and uh, uh, some analysis of weather patterns, but apparently all this stuff, that the, da- the data that they get that from all these satellites, you know, they, they keep it until all of their scientists get a chance to analyze all of it and get the, you know, the first and best publication, and then they make it all public, so... There's there's a little bit of that kind of element going on. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I mean, I, fair yeah, enough, right? I, yeah, I guess fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I don't know how kosher that is in the scientific community, but yeah. I mean, it's their data, right? I mean, you know, I mean, as a you know, when you take your when you get your own data, you, you do with it as you please, and then you publish it. Mm. Do you know? Do other organizations operate like that? You know. I don't particularly know about organizations, but that's how most, you know, uh, you know, research groups will work. I mean, you you you, oh, okay. you don't share all so your data as soon as thing. you as soon as you take it, right? You only, you know, the first time people other groups will see your data is usually when it goes to publishing or at least peer review. Right. Interesting. But with but with NASA NASA being the only one being able to have access to any of that kind of data, no one can reproduce that experiment. I think it's a little bit of a different story. Right. Yeah. I mean, that might change now with uh, with Dragon, but uh, I suppose yeah. that's true. Yeah. So uh, the 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 culmination of going of uh, Al Reinert going through all of this NASA footage was he was making a a documentary film called um, what was it called? It's called For All of Mankind. Mm. It's a it's like an it's it's a really interesting film. You guys should check it out if you haven't seen it. It's like a super uh, in-depth film about all the Apollo programs. There's no narrator. It's just like um, NASA footage with interviews with uh, astronauts and various like oh. NASA folk. That sounds um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, the soundtrack was by Brian Eno. Oh, really? Tom Hanks called it an art film, not a documentary, but which I think is interesting. Here's um, this is just a 
a quote from uh, from Al Reinert um, mm-hmm. about like Apollo astronauts, um, and I think this kind of this quote's really interesting, just kind of to set backdrop for the story they were trying to tell in the movie. Uh, okay. The moon's just the first place you can stop. But what was really meaningful to these guys, if you talk to them, what sticks in their minds was leaving the Earth. Because for days they watched the Earth shrink. What I heard from all these men was the story of a spiritual journey, much more than a technical achievement. Hmm. Huh. I mean, yeah, you definitely get that sense in the movie. Well, I think with with uh, Jim Level, I mean, at least it's a. I mean, he probably diverges from that uh, quote a little bit, at least because he'd already he'd already been to space, and really he just wanted to go to the moon. <laughs> um, but but you do hear that quite a bit from astronauts nowadays. Even that it, I mean, it it's a perspective thing, right? You know, you yeah. go you go into space, and then you know, even if you go to the ISS, they all say, you know, you're looking down on the Earth. Okay, well, where where is this border? Right, it doesn't exist yeah. anymore. None of the none of the borders as they exist on Earth exist when you're in space. So um, I know it, it makes it, world yeah. trifles seem so much smaller. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah, it's kind of like well, this is just an imaginary line. I'm just you know, there's desert here, there's desert there. It's just one desert, buddy. Yeah, yeah. you can't see the lines on the map when you're looking down at the, no. the at the Earth. No, although I think yeah. there. I mean. Perhaps that's not entirely true. You know, if you look at uh, North Korea versus South Korea, there's a whole lot of more lights in one of them than the other. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> you definitely see different things when you're up there. Yeah. So by the time uh, the Jim Lovell and uh, his co-author were writing uh, The Lost Moon, Jack Swaggart had unfortunately... sorry. I, keep, I always call him Swaggart for some I thought, reason. No, it's pronounced Swaggart. It's spelled Swaggart. Oh, really? Okay, Jack swaggered. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he had passed away uh, by the time The Lost Moon was being written. So Al Reinert's interview that he, like, interviews with Swaggart that he got for making his film was uh, super integral in writing the book The Lost Moon. Oh, okay. Cool. So I'm going to get more into this when I talk about the inaccuracies in the film, but I do think that Jack Swaggart got kind of the short end of the stick when it comes to this movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was watching it, and I was, I was a little bit, I mean, you know, in the beginning sequence, it's, who was the, uh, the, the one who wasn't the backup pilot, Ken, yeah. what's his last name? Ken, Ken Mattingly. Mattingly. Ken Mattingly. Played by uh, Gary Sinise, uh, also known as Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan. Dan. I, I just find it great how both Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan are in this movie. Uh, guest bus of the, uh, of the bench warmers. Um <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, when he, you know, the whole sequence in the film when he uh, has to get taken off the mission due to risk of getting measles, and mm. they just give poor Jack Swaggart such a hard time, and there's yeah. there's basically no end to the crap that they just unload on him, and then, you know, Fred Hayes in space just, you know, yeah. b- blaming him for something, like, <laughs> Well, he just stirred the cryo tanks, man, and they just I, 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 basically I, I, I like I they mean, totally ostracize him, yeah. and it's like a two-on-one, you know. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. I have a bit. I, to say I figured. On that. I figured you but, would. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He didn't do anything wrong in the end. My man, Kevin Bacon. You know, you know when the movie yeah. starts and it's Kevin Bacon. I mean, you know well, he I can do no wrong. I think we can all wrong. agree here. We all love and appreciate Kevin Bacon. Absolutely. Yeah. 
You know, they, they definitely leaned really hard into that angle when you could tell when the film opened with that scene with uh, Kevin Bacon, like, hitting on that woman and he's, like, putting the beer bottle into the cup, describing, yeah. like, yeah. oh, well, I mean, the film opened talking about the, the fire. I mean, you know what I mean. The, the after, yeah. The... It's just like okay, that's how that's how we're gonna do it. They're they're just that's bait, how this you know, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. setting the groundwork yeah. for the kind of character they want him to be. I I have some reasons why I think that is, and we'll get to that. There's a lot of setting the groundwork actually. The being, I did yeah. think it was funny. Um, there's there's a scene after the party scene right at the beginning where uh, Jim Lovell and his wife are are driving their Corvette, and uh, there's a bit of foreshadowing where the car craps out while they're trying to restart at the green light. He's like. He's like, oh, that's the second time that's that's crapped out, and this is directly yeah. after they're talking about the uh, the pad, the fire on the pad uh, on, yeah. at Apollo Eight. So, uh, was that Apollo so One? So actually, or interestingly, about that Corvette. Um, oh, I, I I have lots to talk about the Corvettes. Do we want to just talk about that now? Because yeah, we should uh, just talk about that. Sure, sure, right but now. but I'll, okay, cool. I just yeah. wanted to. Can I finish my uh, my thought? Was that. Yeah, they're, they're they're foreshadowing the fact that there's gonna be you know the issues, right? Where he's talking about, oh, that's the second time. Um, mm. But I mean, it's it seemed a bit funny to me. Uh, why do you need foreshadowing? It's Apollo thirteen. It's a, everybody knows what's it's gonna happen. In the name, yeah. You don't need foreshadowing. All right. So about those Corvettes. Yes, about the Corvettes. Um, I was watching the film, and I had noticed that uh, a couple of the astronauts at the party are, are driving. You see a couple of the astronauts driving Corvettes. So I looked this up. Um, apparently, the story is quite interesting. First of all, yep. they had a little nickname, uh, the Astrovet. Um, yeah, so but just to be clear, all the astronauts were given Corvettes. They weren't given them. They had the option to have them. Uh, right. But... Precursor, they're called the Astrovet because of how many astronauts drove them. But at the same time, uh, Chevy Corvette also had an experimental model called the Astrovet, separately of the association with astronauts. So I find that mm. a bit confusing. That's but very yes. confusing. Yeah, but the story. So this was just a normal Corvette. It was a normal Corvette. Well, it was part of an aerodynamic study to enhance the aerodynamics of the Corvette using right, some, right. you know, okay. some, some some space age <laughs> did technology. Did the Corvette? Did the Corvette that the that the astronauts had was that? What kind of Corvette it, was that? Was that its own model? It was a. Some of them were custom. Most of them were regular issue Corvettes. So they um, were like yeah. they but, were like different Corvette models. No, they were all the same model because they were, get them through. Some NASA? of them were customized. No, they so so the story is as I researched it um, that there was a Chevrolet Corvette dealership basically right beside the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and right. the dealer of this uh, of the dealership, uh, the manager, he basically came up with the idea as a PR stunt to lease oh. the Chevrolet, to lease the Corvettes to the astronauts, basically just a, a, a penny on the dollar. Apparently some of the leases were as okay. cheap as so $1. Discount. They got a huge discount. They called it the, the you know, the AstroVet discount, but they were all given, some of them, some, some of them were even created at uh, custom cars. But right. they basically okay. leased them, the, the Corvettes, at, you know, at a fraction of the price, uh, basically for the PR stunt of, you know, 
of all the astronauts getting astronauts getting to astronauts okay. to drive corvettes and uh you know there's the famous uh you know uh, apollo 12 crew and they're all driving the corvettes and they have yeah. them they're parked outside of the the launch pad and they're driving these golden corvettes uh and right. that imagery has still has still stuck but apparently yeah most of all of the Mercury crew, most of all the Apollo crews had the Corvettes because of how cheap it was to have them. I mean, I, I would definitely cash uh, in on that. Hey, why not? Were. But that's a hilarious... Um, no, I think that's... That's, that's, that's great marketing scheme. Yeah. And apparently NASA yeah. was a little bit worried about it at the time. They're like, hey, well, we don't really want to be giving out any free publicity. And then oh, they, uh, okay. But they couldn't do anything about it, right? Right. So, But also, I want to mention this because... Um, Jim Lovell, as you mentioned, you were saying that this is kind of foreshadowing the problems with Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. But listening to Jim Lovell, he seemed to think that that those particular Corvettes were actually really unreliable in general. Oh, did he? Yeah, really. Yeah. Oh, apparently <laughs> so they got the like, color wrong um, too. Speaking of inaccuracies. Sorry. Well, in the movie, Jim Lovell's driving a little red Corvette. I think the uh, probably to do with the popularity of prince at the time that's, I, I don't that's, know about that i don't know maybe. who knows but in real life the corvette was blue right okay because i know ken mattingly has a golden corvette that he drives in one scene. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a bit gaudy. interesting gaudy. i mean it looks pretty cool i think the golden but, uh, black ones yeah it's not like it's not like really shiny gold no but it's kind, it's of, kind like of like a, a matte it's a, almost a yeah. bronzish color I'm picturing yeah. like it looks, I think it looks pretty good. I'm picturing it being like cartoonishly like looks like it's made out of gold and like shining. I mean, it's it's in the movie. It's the scene where they're they, where he's sitting at. Oh lunch. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a tarnished yeah, color. Thirteen Houston, we'd like you to attempt to reconnect fuel cell one to main A and fuel cell three to main B. Verify that quad delta is open. Okay, uh, Houston, I'm showing. Uh, I tried to reset, and uh, fuel cell one and three are both showing uh, gray flags, but they're both showing zip on the flows. We copy. So, uh, just for uh, for reference here, Felix, can you talk about your area of research? Yeah, okay. Um, well, like you guys said, I'm in, I'm in physics uh, at U of T, and I am an experimental condensed matter physicist. So, uh, kind of work on not nanoscale, but uh, you know, small scale objects. Generally, you'll have uh, you'll have crystals that were grown and you do some kind of experiments in my group. We work on X-ray and neutron spectroscopy experiments. So it's somewhere between the classical and the quantum realm uh, with these kinds of crystals and generally you want to discover some interesting properties that they possess. Um, so it's pretty far off from space. 
as you might as you might yeah. be able to tell. Uh, more than us. Yeah, so, and uh, I, 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 closer than I us, do understand so. you did did some research that had to do with Mars as well. Are you able? Are you able to tell us anything about that? Sure. Yeah. Of course. Um, so I mean, kind of in in your physics program, you'll have your you know obviously your year, and then a lot of the students will apply for um, research scholarships. So there's a lot of summer projects that get posted by professors. Basically, it's free labor for them to have undergraduate students work with them. Um, but the first summer I worked uh, uh, with a professor at U of T um, studying um, Mars atmospheric patterns um, and uh, atmospheric data. And uh, the summer of third year, I kind of got more into the condensed matter realm. Uh, but I do have that one, that one summer where I was studying, studying Mars mostly how much CO2 there is in the atmosphere, but, but yeah. How much CO2 is there in the atmosphere? Not that much, actually. It's a seasonal cycle, um, because as you go between the Mars summer and mm. winter, uh, they actually, uh, a, a very large percentage of the CO2 in the atmosphere will precipitate out as dry ice. And there is actually oh, cool. a pretty, there's like six, actually I don't remember if it's six feet or six meter layer of uh, permanent dry ice, uh, ice caps at the north and south pole. So there's ice at the caps, but it's, but it's not water ice, it's, it's so like dry ice. So like solid CO2. Solid CO2, yeah. Wow. And it'll often snow dry ice there in, in the, in the, um, in the winter. But overall it is, it is pretty sparse. Right. Uh, it's a, it's pretty much a desert the whole planet and the atmosphere is i think right. only about 20 percent the thickness of earth's atmosphere so but it does vary a lot between summer and winter would you say that there was more co2 in the atmosphere of mars or in the <laughs> apollo 13 capsule when they had the issue with the scrum well I, i'd still probably still have to bet on mars but uh <laughs> But they, but maybe it got close. I don't okay. know. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, Felix, uh, if you knew the the pre Apollo programs, anything about them? Um, uh, I know a little bit about. I when I was when I was doing research actually about the Corvettes, I discovered that the Project Mercury astronauts were driving Corvettes. <laughs> so I know there's one named Mercury, um, and I believe there's there's a, the Gemini. Um, but I don't know too, too much about them. Uh, I know a little bit about the post-Second World War development yeah. of the NASA space program. But uh, Speaking of Mercury, have you guys ever seen the movie Hidden Figures? No, I've, I've been, been meaning, meaning to. to, yeah. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I actually thought it was really great. And like one of the things I really like about it is like, it talks about Project Mercury a lot more than it talks about it. I mean, it doesn't really talk about uh, the lunar yeah. program. And it's it's a sort of area of history that's not really explored a lot. No, well, and I was, I actually was thinking about that a bit while watching Apollo thirteen. Um, that uh, I mean, a lot of the famous uh, code writers and um, you know uh, the people who would have written the programming that would probably be the ones that would be most useful for figuring out uh, you know um, figuring out what to do in the moment when there's issues, it would have been the women who wrote the code, but they weren't anywhere in that command room. I, I don't know if historically they would have not well, been allowed in there, but no, that there seems was, like maybe a bit of an oversight. I was reading there was one woman who was in a command room 
and I was honestly disappointed. Was in, it by any chance Margaret Hamilton? I think it might have been. I don't remember. Yeah. Specifically, she's the one who wrote by hand all the lines of code for the. Well, Margaret Hamilton led the team that wrote the software for the Apollo guns computer. Right. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most disappointing part of the film. Really, is the fact that there's only like one female character, and she's like entirely, like rooted in kind of. I mean, given it's it's a period film, but you know, yes, I mean, yeah. Given uh, how pretty basic gender roles, yeah. I'm not sure how much we can blame Ron Howard for that. Well, so much I as we I can don't blame the what actually took place. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Um, yeah, my I just you know uh, what was her name? I already like Margaret Hamilton. You said her name was Margaret Hamilton. Margaret yeah. Hamilton. Yeah, like she was in the control room during Apollo 13, I believe. So like I don't know. the fact that you don't even see yeah, her at all. I don't, a bit disappointing. I don't know that for a considering fact, but how important. Well, I, I do recall reading that she was in in the okay. in the. I wouldn't be surprised if she was. Yeah, one woman. It's hard to think if you're if you're trying to you know reprogram your your flight path you know on the fly that you'd you'd want the person who originally wrote the yeah, code there. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. I, I, I yeah. I'm I'd I'd be surprised if she wasn't consulted. But yeah, anyway. Project uh, Mercury. Project Mercury. Yeah, that Tell was us about a, Project Mercury. It wasn't the first space program, but it was the first like uh, space program to put humans into orbit, excluding, was... of course, the uh, the Russian space program. Sorry, Americans. Yeah, uh, of course. Sorry, yeah. The Soviet uh, uh, space program. The Soviet space program is a yeah. totally different story altogether. Yeah. Um, There's a lot I could say about the Soviet space program, but I will leave that for yeah. potentially a future podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they actually don't i think it's cool they don't actually come up that much in this story the soviets the soviets yeah because not it's not really a yeah. space race story because it's post lunar landing which is interesting yeah anyway um so the goal of project mercury was to, was to put humans into orbit and they succeeded on friendship seven with john glenn um who came another, up that name? Only after, only after uh, getting beaten by... Uh, yeah, Yager, yeah, the second. The not, I don't even know if he was a second. Maybe the Soviets even had someone else before him. Um, anyway. I don't know. But I who, believe John Glenn was the second person. Are you sure it's his first American in orbit? Are you sure it was not a suborbital flight? Sorry, I'm getting anal here. But No, Shepard Shepherd was the first suborbital oh, okay. flight. John Sorry, Glenn was first. Was, John Glenn was the first orbital flight, right? So, but I believe Yuri Gagarin was an orbital flight and happened before both of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. believe so. Just, just to be um, accurate. Another. Wait, wait. Can we can we rewind though? Who came up with the name Friendship Seven? <laughs> I don't know. I think it might I have been John know. Glenn. Because because that's just all... actually yeah, that's true. It is. I believe that it is a uh, that uh, the. The astronauts actually get to name the capsule. Yeah, it's the captain's choice, and since the Mercury only has a is a one man crew, I, I lost a lot of respect for him just there. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? What's wrong with Friendship Seven? It's a terrible code name. Okay, so if you guys were to name your capsule, what would you name it? Mm. It's a dragon because I guess that's what we'd be launching on these days. What would you name your capsule? I don't know. S something. Something, uh, something I mean, you intense, know, you know something what thrilling. It, right? What would you name yours? I would, I would obviously name my fucking capsule Enterprise. Um, 
Maybe like maybe like Soul Shredder. <laughs> Soul Shredder? Something, something yeah. super metal. Alright, yeah. what about you, Keen? So we got oh. Enterprise, Soul Shredder, and what are you calling yours? I don't know. This is like a really tough question. <laughs> I first I'm gonna uh, make f- not make fun, I'm gonna be disappointed with yours. That's predictable as hell. Enterprise? Yeah. Well, why the f- I mean, you know I'd have to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, hey, NASA did it themselves, so yeah. Jake can Actually, do it. only after a letter-writing campaign of Star Trek fans. Really? Yeah. So, basically, uh, NASA, I can't remember, I think they were originally going to call it Constitution, I think? Oh, uh, that's so boring. They were going to call it Constitution, and then all the Star Trek fans started writing in saying, you have to call it Enterprise. <laughs> And then enough I mean, people hey. wrote in that President Gerald Ford decided, okay, we're just going to call it fucking Enterprise. <laughs> and apparently he was like, well, I mean, Enterprise is a pretty good name. Like, we have... It's a pretty good name. It is a good name. It's a good name. Yeah. So. Keaton, the, 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 the fire is back on you. You got you to gotta choose your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's, what, what's your capsule called? My command module is going to be called Mustang. 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 It's not going to be called Voyager? <laughs> no, that's already a starship, man. I think the, uh, the 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 Corvette dealership manager is gonna have some uh, something to say about that. Harsh words for you, yeah. 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 After <laughs> after I gave you the Astrovette, you're gonna name your capsule Mustang. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I true. just I am livid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although the Ford dealership would probably give you some some cars. So no, uh, it's. Uh, it's 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 after the horse. I wouldn't take a to I wouldn't take a car sponsorship. So if ha- Ford offered you the Astro the Astro Mustang, you wouldn't take it. No, I'd, but if a farmer offered I mean, me I- a pure bred Mustang, I might you know. <laughs> right. All right. But but how many horsepower is that? One. <laughs> it's one horse. Yeah. It's no. Th- it's this is a prime Mustang. It's got to be at you least got like five hundred horses in there. Yeah. yeah, it's got a heart of gold. Okay. Anyway, getting back to the matter at hand. Um. Yeah. There was yeah. another another uh, Mercury Seven astronaut named uh, Wally Shira, who flew in a Sigma Seven. He um he'll come up just a couple more times. Uh, he would eventually become like a, a CBS correspondent, and uh, he would report with Walter Cronkite during the Apollo like moon the whole lunar program including apollo 13 including apollo 13 so he was on the yeah, air the night I, that i believe walter cronkite take, makes an appearance in the film on tv yeah he does he does i was wondering actually when when they had the tv scenes i mean he, i know one of them was walter cronkite but they had a the correspondent there and he was like how's this guy so knowledgeable about these like like on the spot you know he's able to like explain all these things very quickly without very much debriefing but yeah. i guess that makes sense that, yeah it's because wally yeah. shira <laughs> yeah there you go um what do you know do you know what do you know about project gemini uh i i believe buzz aldrin was one of the Project Gemini astronauts. Correct. Buzz Aldrin what was, was a... the mission statement for Project Gemini? Um, the goal was to demonstrate endurance of humans and equipment in spaceflight for extended periods because they need, you know, you need to be at space in space for eight days for a moon landing. Right. The second goal was, um, like I was saying earlier, to perfect the kind of rendezvous maneuvers that they'd have to do. 
to connect to the lunar module later on. Oh, so that design decision was made at a fairly early point, eh? Yeah, I think the whole like basic idea was kind of right. Although I suppose even if you didn't, even if they were connected after, like during the Saturn launch, even if they didn't have to redock after that, they would definitely have to redock when you're coming back up from the lunar surface. Exactly. Yeah. True. You mentioned Buzz Aldrin was a was a Gemini astronaut. Um, a few other people you might recognize were uh, Gemini astronauts, including Jim Lovell, mm. as well as uh, the only civilian astronaut in Project Gemini was a man named uh, Neil Armstrong. He was civilian. Legend. Yeah, he's technically not military. Really? He was. Right. He had worked within NASA that. for. Huh. Uh, a long time beforehand so he, yeah did he not at least have to have his pilot's license i, I assume no he was in the navy well or no not at that not at the time of gemini is my point is he 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 would have been in the navy oh, so and he then was already he retired. retired and joined nasa right um so yeah jim lovell was uh in gemini and he was actually his first mission i think it was his first mission it might it might have been his second mission was the the mission that proved right. that humans could live in space for eight days i mean as we've learned that isn't really the issue is the short term i mean you know <laughs> it, it's yeah. it's really the long-term effects of uh, the increased radiation right there's a lot of uh, links right. to but i mean at the time they didn't even know you could be more than like a day right i suppose that's true they didn't know you could i mean they didn't know you could take a shit in space like also, I don't even think that cancer research was very existent in nineteen. <laughs> uh, there, in the there was some going on. Yeah, but, I believe it was, but uh, very yeah. And as you mentioned, Buzz Aldrin, as we said, Buzz Aldrin was a was a Gemini astronaut. First um, uh, spacewalk, right? EVA. Yeah. Well, that was the final Gemini mission. Mm. Um, and the captain of that mission, I believe, it was uh, Gemini Twelve. Yeah, it was Gemini yeah. Twelve. Um, also, interesting fact about Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin is above the law. Buzz Aldrin is above the law? What does that mean? <laughs> so, have you ever seen that video of Buzz Aldrin punching a conspiracy theorist in the face? I did yeah. see that, yeah. Moon truth. Yeah. Great yeah. video. So, that guy definitely deserved it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. That guy tried to sue him for assault. Yeah. And the judge threw out the case self-defense well, he was I mean, attacking his character the guy had kind of set up this whole situation and lured buzz aldrin in there under false pretenses right yeah but i mean it yeah. was assault but i mean he did have it coming but I but guess... it's buzz fucking aldrin yeah. <laughs> yeah but the law doesn't this... the law isn't supposed to work that way but that is pretty funny it's, i mean you know it's yeah you're supposed to be impartial as a judge but i mean who could really be it's dark because it speaks to how broken the legal system is, but it's cool yeah. because he didn't deserve to be charged with assault. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm generally opposed to, like, most kinds of violence, but, I mean, I think if you're going to punch somebody in the face, like, Buzz Aldrin punching this guy in the face, that's that's deserved. So Ed White was the first guy to just leave the spacecraft and float around. Right. But mm -hmm. Buzz Aldrin actually like did some like Repairs. modifications to the spacecraft sure. to prove that you could do that without like dying of exhaustion. Tighten some 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 nuts and bolts. Um, yeah, so exactly. I have a question. What what was the uh, Gemini the, those missions? What were they launched on? Was it also the Saturn V or was it 
Saturn Four. I think it was Titan. Titan, okay. Gemini. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's super interesting because it's like a lot of this uh, this rocket technology came out of basically like the uh, the United States nuclear program. Really? Yeah. Like the Redstone rocket is essentially a modified nuclear missile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first um... they launched on a combo. It says okay. like uh, on the Atlas Ag- Agena and the and the, the Titan, Titan Two. Yeah. The Titan right. Two was was literally wasn't it just a, an ICBM like that they did almost no changes to. I, I I'm not familiar, but. Uh... Once again, I really recommend the movie Hidden Figures because they talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm definitely going to watch it. Yeah. I'm definitely going to watch it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the, the just to quickly touch back, the, the mission that Buzz Aldrin completed, that was the final Mercury, or the final Gemini mission where he uh, did his spacewalk, uh, that was commanded by Jim Lovell, was his captain for that. Jim oh, okay. Lovell, yeah, legend. That. Cool. So now I guess that brings us to Project Apollo. The one everybody loves. Yeah, the one most people remember. I mean, um, I don't remember it. I wasn't alive for it. I don't think no. I mean, you guys weren't either. Yeah. So. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. I know it happened. Do yeah. you? Well, I'm told it happened. Yeah. Do, do you know it happened? I know it. Fuck. <laughs> I'm just the dude that defended Buzz Aldrin for punching a guy in the face for saying it didn't happen. <laughs> like, well, of course it fucking happened. Was, was it... Was that guy... I thought... Am I remembering incorrectly? I thought that guy was saying that the moon was a hologram. I don't know exactly. Or was he just he was saying, saying the moon landing was fake? The general idea is that he thinks the moon landing didn't happen, and that Buzz Aldrin is lying to the people by pretending that it happened. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is complete bullshit. I'm sorry. If you are a moon landing conspiracy theorist, I have no respect for you. Do not listen to this podcast. <laughs> no. But at the same time, if you're gonna go there. I I would personally go all the way to like you know it's one thing to be like oh people can't land on the moon I prefer saying the moon doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> like how long there's pictures of the moon from like the 1800s like you think people had like you know holographic projectors back yeah. then I'm just, like what are you uh, yeah. what it's it doesn't make any sense there's some uh. There's some gymnastics required, I think, to leave that. Yeah. There's pictures from the 1800s, and there's depictions as far as, basically, as time goes. To be a moon landing conspiracy theorist, you abs- you either have to be in just absolute willful denial, or be, like, actually concussed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair enough. Um, oh, I actually, I got a good one for you guys. I, uh, um, uh, speaking of, you know, space and space launches and, and conspiracy theories. I know of someone who, uh, about the recent SpaceX launches, uh, claimed that it didn't happen because obviously it's impossible for them to land a rocket. So it must be conspiracy Wait, theory. Wait, what? You know a person? Yep. Who, who says this? Yep. Like you've met them in flesh and blood? Yeah. That's disturbing. Yeah, but it's they can land it. Like yeah, they they, they can land. They've I done mean, it many times. 
it definitely Third parties didn't, have it, confirmed. It definitely didn't happen. Yeah, there's so many people who watch these things, and there's, there's like... There's a lot of evidence that And this it's happened. not like they just started doing it. It's like, oh, it's impossible. But it's like... They, but they, they, they tested, and they tried, and they failed, like, 50-something times before they managed to do it yeah. it was an iterative process and there's very well documented you kind of have to be lazy in your that's research like, to like just a be like special kind or of just willful, willful ignorance, ignorance. Yeah. yeah but you obviously don't look into it at all right you know it's like you yeah. start looking you well know. no but you, you you have to be so convinced of something without seeing any evidence that yeah yeah just don't even yeah it's, it's not it's, worth it's just so dumb yeah so yeah Moon landing conspiracy theorists, you are all banned from this podcast. <laughs> you're banned. You're banned. You're, you're done. You're banned. You're done. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Wait, Jake. Uh, play the play the John Cena theme. They can't. They oh, can't shoot this I podcast. Didn't prepare it. Sorry. <laughs> oh no. Oh. I, I, let me get it. Let me get it real quick. I got a message to all you conspiracy theorists who don't think the moon landing ever happened. I got news for you. You can't see us because you're banned. Oh, that's right. You ain't got no hustle, you ain't got no loyalty, and you ain't got no respect. So be gone. And you deserve to be punched in the face by Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, well, you know, not to advocate violence, but... No, no, definitely not. But Unless you know the person doing the punching is Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> okay, let me give you some reading gay in the interim to help uh, mean a uh, voltage, Jack. I've got uh, bust IC on. Say again, Fred. In the interim to help out mean a voltage, I've got uh, mean bust I uh, bad AC on. Uh, how would you rather accept the uh, 25 volts uh, we're seeing on mean a? Okay, bust I AC on. 13 Houston, uh, we'd like you to verify a couple readings for us. Uh, we'd like the nitrogen pressure on fuel cell 1. We need the oxygen pressure on fuel cell 2. Okay, nitrogen on 1 and oxygen on 2, is that correct? Negative oxygen on 3. Okay. Okay, system test uh, 1A. Says zip. Alright. We were talking about the Apollo missions. Yeah, yep. we're going to talk about Project Apollo. What do you guys do? Um, first of all, the, the ship. What do you guys know about the ship? Do you know how many modules in total and like what they are? I, I, I Wasn't can't it five give you stages? an exact number. But I believe there was okay. So there was Saturn V, which was kind of like the whole big rocket. There was the Saturn. One this is and this is not counting. I'm not counting stage. the boosters. Okay, so I won't count the boosters. Okay, so there was the um, there was the command module. There was yep. the command service module. Yeah. Which was like a thing attached to the command module. There yeah, was lunar the, module. Um, sorry. The lunar module. There was yeah the LEM the lunar yep. module. That's it. Command module, command service module, and the lunar module. Right. Um, the, c the command module is pretty obvious what it what it is and what it does. 
Um, so the bit you know. that in the film was called Odyssey, does that refer to just the command module or is that the whole that's, thing? That's the command service module. Yeah, well the command module is really just it's just the capsule on top of the Well it's it's on the top reentry of... bit. Yeah, it's the only thing that reenters. Yeah. It's the the bit with the with the blast shield or Right, but then this the only difference with the service module is just they attach the uh the the, the fuel tank and the engine, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that it can maneuver a bit more. Um it's got it's got like basically all, all the hardware in it, but in terms of uh, this movie, like the actual important bits are, it has a uh, it has two hydrogen tanks, um, and two oxygen tanks that lead to uh, three fuel cells with catalyzing electrodes, and right. um, um, I don't understand this process. Perhaps Felix can uh, can help um, lend some shed some light on it. But yeah, the, that the somehow when you mix these two chemicals. Through a catalyzing electrode, get heat, water, and electricity, which is like pretty dope for a spaceship water, to get. Yeah, water exactly and which? Heat, water, and electricity. Water, yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, yeah, because you, I mean, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, H two O. It's basically electro- the process of electrolysis by which you. Uh, I think there's some amount of starting energy you have to input, basically to start the reaction but yeah you can produce um so that would be what the fuel cells were like the with the yeah. catalyzing electrodes that would be like the power source that like yeah, spurred exactly. the reaction right. spurred the reaction exactly right. you can although i guess that's reverse uh, that's reverse electrolysis i think because electrolysis right. is splitting h2o into hydrogen and oxygen so i but, assume uh, similar. the batteries would have been there to provide the starting energy for these fuel cells yeah probably yeah, and then the lunar module speaks for itself what that's for, you know? Yeah, <laughs> despite not moon. being used in the movie hmm. for the original purpose. Yeah, so there were um, two unmanned Apollo space flights. Mm-hmm. Was this before Apollo 1? Yes. Okay. Um, which, that brings us right now to Apollo 1. Okay, so um, I know a little bit of Apollo Apollo 1, and so basically Apollo 1 was meant to be the first manned Apollo flight. I don't actually know what their actual mission was because they didn't actually get that far. But so um, one of the things that I need to mention about the Apollo capsule is that it used a pure oxygen environment. That's okay. That's a bit dangerous. Yeah. Well, uh, so... the early Apollo the first Apollo 1 did. But yeah, that seems a bit dangerous. I mean, first of all, you've got, obviously, flammability, right? You know, yeah. as an oxidizer that'll carry a flame, you can get some pretty nasty explosions with pure oxygen. And also, it's not really good for people to be in a pure oxygen environment. Like, it can help you, it can, it can help you focus, but, uh, like, I mean... In a sense, people get pretty fucked up. You get pretty high from that. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that, but um, well, it's it's. I mean, yeah, they say well, it's, it's akin, they say it's akin to that. It's like hyper focused, right. and y- your your brain basically goes into overdrive. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's not per. I mean, that doesn't seem optimal. No, I guess that's to get them past the uh, the nerves of liftoff. You're just 
you're just jacked up by by breathing pure oxygen. Yeah, so, but one of the interesting things is that uh, actually the Russian spacecraft didn't use pure oxygen. Okay. And there was actually uh, a reason why you would want to use pure oxygen, and that's because the... Uh, the engineering behind it would be a lot more simple because you would only have to have the the fuel cell just feeding sorry no you would you would only have to have the tank of pure oxygen one tank you'd only have to have one tank but i mean right. i mean logistically though i mean if you have some like a ga- uh, a tank of nitrogen gas i mean beyond it being pressurized sure okay that can present a hazard but nitrogen's totally non-reactive effectively so yes but but the thing is that they would have to have another tank for nitrogen right so i guess whereas they had all this liquid oxygen that they used in combination for the the yeah 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 and and the fuel cell and also for breathing so they could use this one tank for a bunch of purposes right interestingly the uh the soviet rocket sorry the soviet uh soyuz capsules didn't use this system because they had had an accident on the ground ah. prior to any of this happening that they didn't tell anybody about. Wonder if things would have changed had they told somebody about it. Yeah, I, I wonder. So, but anyway. I, wonder, I wonder why didn't news didn't travel? It's like maybe it got stopped by some sort of um, well, this was an experiment that in the USSR wasn't like publicized. Yeah, this was before they actually launched anything. Oh, okay. So as a result, uh, they went ahead with this pure oxygen idea. Okay. And there were basically a bunch of things that went wrong in a row sure. for this to cause a fire on Apollo 1. Yeah, okay. Which is something that they actually talk about in the film at the beginning. Just before you continue, really quick, Jake, I just need to clarify. It, Apollo 1, the incident was not like a, a launch. Yeah, so it this was, was a was, pad was, abort test, I believe. Yeah, it was a practice launch. Yeah. Um, basically, one of the problems was the insulation on the cabling. Sure. Uh, and so what happened was there was a spark that occurred. And Classic. Yeah, so that started the fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other issue was that the hatch... Was on broken, defective. Sorry, was defective in some sort. Yeah, I mean they talked well, about was, that. It, it wasn't wasn't that it was defective. Yeah, it was that um it was uh it was three layers that required in under perfect circumstances with um astronauts and rescue teams working together. It took like ninety seconds to. Yeah. Uh, so it was really hard to open. It his... couldn't be open from the inside. Right, okay, so Tom Hanks in the movie is lying to his kid when he says they fixed the problem. No, they did fix well, they that did. problem. They, but they, the they problem was the door. They fixed the door and they fixed the cable. Oh, they did, okay. So yeah. what they they didn't change was it still used pure oxygen. What? And well, Apollo I, 11 I read got the... to the moon on pure oxygen. Wow, that's... Really, that's weird, because I, I read in... You'd learn. I read in Lost Moon that they actually uh, changed Oh, am, am I mistaken? Maybe I mean I read in Paul in Lost Moon that they said that after that event they they started um, including nitrogen in in the in the atmosphere in the in the space. Oh oh yeah I, I could be wrong on that. 
Um, the, I actually, the, I, th I thought something about that was funny. I mean, they're talking in the movie, bringing it back to that, uh, that I think at one point in, in, in the command room, um, Gene Kranz, I think that's his name, right? The yeah, the Ed Harris it plays Ed Harris. Plays, yeah. yeah, Gene Kranz. Yeah. He's talking. They're talking. Flight director. The flight director. They're talking about bringing them back, right? He's like, he's like, we've never lost an American in space. I'm like, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess technically, yeah. but you, you, you did, space you did very, kill a bunch of them on the ground. <laughs> yeah, technically, um, I just, guess. Just specifically the um, the guys who were in in Apollo one were uh, a guy named Gus Grissom, um, yeah. who was a veteran of, of, I think both Mercury and M and I, um, a guy named, uh, Edward White, who, as we mentioned earlier, he was the first guy to, to do a spacewalk. Okay. Um, and a guy, this super interesting, a guy named Robert, Robert, sorry, Roger B. Chafee. And he was a, he was a, he'd never been in space before this was like uh apollo one was supposed to be his first uh space flight and it was just it was interesting that he was tapped as like junior pilot for the first apollo mission first manned apollo mission because you'd expect them to like it really speaks to his like um abilities that um right. somebody who'd never been in space was tapped for that over like all the other you know, so uh, right and obviously so, sadly he he never got to uh yeah. Display these skills on Very the mission. Yeah. He never yeah. got to space, but he's still an astronaut. Yes. So, but so, so, rest in so peace. there's a little. I'm just with you guys. Was it? Was it supposed to be a space flight, or was it just a, a pad abort test? Because I'm getting a little yeah. bit of the incident. There. The incident was just an abort test. That's when so the they fire they occurred. meant to do. An so they were doing an abort test. Flight. My understanding was that the uh, the rocket was not going to leave the the launch pad. Oh yeah, I'm confused. Sorry, the 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 abort system itself has to be activated by a human in those in those days. So they had to have somebody in it to perform oh, okay. the abort test. Right. So that's that's my that's my uh, bad. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty pretty grim details. I won't get get too into about about the actual um, fire, but um, yeah, it, apparently in the command module it got to like be apparently temperatures of like thousands of degrees. Oh, yeah, because um, wow. as I say, it was pure oxygen burning. But yeah, um, to say, I, I guess it's the wrong word, but luckily, I suppose, um, the astronauts didn't. They died of um, uh, asphyxiation from fumes before they. Yeah, right. So I mean, they, apparently, like fifteen seconds essentially. So at right. least they didn't really suffer they were a fire. Which is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Path yeah. a little bit less horrendously and painfully. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's so, pretty, but it's pretty dark. But they, yeah, they did learn quite a bit from this mission, correct? And they continue to do unmanned missions after this, actually, right? Yeah, I think they did two more unmanned missions before they did another. Before they did the first manned mission, Apollo Seven mm -hmm. was the first manned mission. So Apollo 1 was supposed to be manned, but then after it turned out so poorly, they were like, all right, let, maybe let's go back to the drawing board and do some unmanned missions I again. Think, I think Apollo 1 was supposed to be an unmanned mission, but just because after the event happened, they decided to call it Apollo 1. There were a lot of things kind of leading up to this that were like a little bit dicey in terms of like, uh, like as you were saying, Felix, earlier, how like it was kind of a bit 
like dangerous how they were just nasa was just kind of throwing eyes into space because they wanted to beat the russians right yeah no uh, there's definitely an element of that yeah there was like an interaction you remember the guy where i was talking about earlier wally shira who was a walter conkright's correspondent sure mm-hmm. wally shira he yeah he was the uh he was the backup captain for apollo one mm-hmm. so he did like an, a lot of tests in the in the apollo um like simulator Sure. And uh, apparently after after one of these uh, tests, he like went to Gus Grissom, who was the captain of Apollo 1. Um, and he was like, what did he say? Yeah, he said, like, he just, the, he didn't like the feel of the ship. He said it didn't feel like it. It felt like a clunker or like a, a, an, an, a, an astronaut term called an Edsel. Um, an Edsel, yeah, it... actually, that's, a, that's named after a... Uh... I don't know if you know the history, but it's named after this Ford uh, car that uh, was pretty advanced for its time, but it really sold poorly. That's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it it, it looked really ugly. That's why. Huh. Yeah. The ship was like described by astronauts as downright dangerous, like leading up to this launch. Sorry, I recall there's a famous picture of of all the astronauts that were going to be on Apollo One. They're taking a group photo, and I, I think it was meant to be a joke, but they're all sort of like holding their hands together and praying that like this this, this actually uh, went well. That's pretty yeah, dark. There's certainly yeah. not the rigor of testing, uh, or there wasn't rather that there is now. Yeah, well, I definitely think Apollo One was was one of the things that changed that. I would like leading up to this test. So. Yeah, really, it was. Because, like, leading up to this test, like, some of the things that went wrong, like, the nozzle to the engine shattered during a test, which is, like, you know, obviously no good. Um, The, uh, during splashdown test, the uh, heat shield cracked open, and the command command module just sunk like a stone. Um, The environmental control system, which will, in the story of Apollo 13, is what goes wrong, um, had logged 200 individual errors, and the oh whole spacecraft has lo- had logged over twenty thousand errors. Wow, that's like, like that's concerning. Like, definitely, it is concerning. And there's like a story apparently where Gus to Grissom, to say the least. Yeah, there's a story where Gus Grissom uh, apparently was touring a factory for the command module, and after like looking over the command module, he like left a lemon on top of it and walked oh, out. Oh wow! Which begs the question: like, did he walk in with a lemon? <laughs> I don't know. He was he was ready. Yeah. He was ready to be like this is a piece of shit. I mean, I'm sure yeah, he'd yeah, heard some yeah. of the specifications he probably already knew. He was like he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to bring 11. It's going to be a power move. I'm really going to show him who's boss." So, I don't know if you guys checked, but I just put a picture oh, yeah, in there the is. chat of Yeah, the, that's pretty dark. The dark picture. So, now that they've learned from Apollo 1, what did they do about it? Well, as you, as you say, they um they made everything fireproof, um, <laughs> uh, and they uh changed. As I understand, they changed the makeup of the atmosphere. But like you know, there was still all those issues with the with the actual craft itself didn't really go away. They just kind of kept testing it and kept working on it. Apollo eight is super interesting because that's uh. That's Jim Lovell's first Apollo mission. Is that when they did a round trip around the moon? 
Yeah, correct. Like they uh, is it Apollo Eight? Yeah, Apollo Eight. It's super interesting. Which cause... is kind of interesting because obviously the the flight path you take looks like an eight. Yeah, that's funny actually. Right. It's it's this is this is a really cool mission, and it again speaks to like the uh, how antsy NASA was um, to beat the Russians um, because Apollo Eight wasn't initially planned to go around the uh, the moon. It was more just like lunar module um tests to like you know operate it and uh, connect with it etc um a couple months earlier the russians had done the first they'd sent a ship around the moon it was manned but they sent an unmanned ship right. around the moon and nasa was like oh geez like they're gonna they're getting ready to, to do it they're gonna beat us to sending a man around the moon so apollo decided they were like they like um got the team together, NASA got the team together, and was like, okay, can we, is it possible for us to bump the uh, Apollo 8 mission and turn that into Apollo 9, and instead we're going to send, we're going we're gonna to send Apollo 8 around the moon before the Russians do. And he gave the, he, they gave the scientists 72 hours to be like, can you do this? And the scientists came back in 24 hours being like, yes, we can definitely, we can send Apollo 8 around the moon. So, oh wow! Yeah. So what they did. Well, from from what I understand, the Saturn V rocket actually had a huge excess of delta V, and it, uh, you know, they were. It was designed to basically, like, going to the moon and back was never an issue, and there was a lot of excess fuel, and they could have, you know, I think there's, I don't know if I heard these estimates properly, but that it, you know, basically almost could have made it to Mars. Um, wow. That it was, they they just jammed it full of so much fuel. I mean, it's a huge rocket if you think about yeah. it. Right? Obviously, it's not that efficient, but I mean, yeah, they, it, it was it was very um, overqualified for what it was built for. Yeah, I right. think on purpose. Yeah, no, they, they wanted a huge buffer. That's a redundancy measure. They had plans for the Saturn V that never actually uh, realized because the budget obviously got cut after the landing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you if you like even Apollo thirteen, right? They 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 managed to get the proper orbit with four of the five uh, engines, and the, the missing the center, uh, the, the the most powerful engine. So. Right. Yeah. So, but I mean, they were liquid rocket boosters, so they still had the fuel, correct? I don't know. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. I'm not totally sure, but that doesn't necessarily give you the same delta V. Right. right. Uh, this is this is based on uh, what I heard from from Jim Lovell. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not totally sure of of the specific maneuver, but it's not like in order to orbit the moon and land properly, like approach at the right angle, you have to do like a burn behind the moon in order to like slow yourself down. So you're not right. like overshot, and you got to do it. Right. It's like super tense because you have to do it on the dark side of the moon when you don't have uh, radio um, uh, connection okay. with uh, mission control. So like yeah, when they when they went to the dark side of the moon, it's basically like a three minute period, and if they screw it up, they might end up just blowing the whole mission right there, and you know yeah, just slingshotting into space. Yeah. Right. It's like that's super tense being responsible for that. Maneuver, I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, at least they had their nav system. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wanted. I specifically I wanted to talk about Apollo Eight because that was like Jim Lovell's. You know, that he was the first one of the first three people to like circumnavigate the moon, um, and like, so I figured that was kind of really important to the story of like the of Apollo Thirteen. Um, so at this point, I figure um, we've been talking about the real Apollo for for long enough. Yeah, I suppose we should get to the movie. Um, yeah, it's time we maybe <laughs> we maybe attempted to to bring it back to to the film. So I believe. So, but I mean, I mean, quickly, we should obviously talk about Apollo Eleven. Well, I mean, if you want, <laughs> we can talk. Do you want? We can talk about Apollo Eleven. Sorry, what happened there? Yeah, you know, some people maybe made it to the moon. You know, some guy. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 made some little step. It's probably not that important. Yeah, you know? little step for man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, continuing Apollo twelve. Um. Do we know much about that? Uh, it's just your is a lunar landing, um, mission. They landed successfully, right. and got got their moon rocks and came back. Okay. Like the first two lunar landings were um, in really smooth desert-like terrain, basically. Um, right. Which has like sea of tranquility. Yeah. Not particularly interesting from a geological perspective. Yeah. Because it's all yeah. like the same uh, makeup. So Apollo thirteen. Right. Although I'm sure they didn't know that at the time. I mean, they probably did assume. Yeah. Gen- diet. Uh, deserts aren't generally very like diverse ecosystems. Right. And uh, two Baker, which is uh, three oxygen, uh, says point six. Two Baker says uh, point six, and uh, say again the other one. Uh, fuel cell one uh, nitrogen uh, reads uh, zero. Roger zero. Houston, we'd like you to open circuit fuel cell one. Leave two and three as is. Okay, I'll get to work on that. And uh, Jack, uh, our O2 uh, quantity number two tank is ringing zero. Did you get that? O2 quantity number two is zero. That's AC, okay. Yeah, that's, that's because of AC. And it looks to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that we are venting something. Roger, we copy your venting. Yeah, so we've, 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 uh, I know at the beginning of when we started researching all of this, we started uh, talking about doing this movie. Um, I was a bit concerned, uh, that we might accidentally just spend all of our time talking about the real Apollo program. Well, I mean, that's definitely happened which to an extent we have which <laughs> i'm now that it's happened i'm totally fine with um yeah no it was it was fun yeah i but, love apollo i'd love to nerd about that crap and i'm sure yeah i'm sure uh tom hanks 
love to do that while doing this movie. Yeah, of course. Um, and I just want to let Tom Hanks know if he's listening to this, he's welcome on the podcast anytime. Yeah, he is. Very, he's oh welcome. yeah, anytime. <laughs> so on that note, um, I believe Jake, you've done a little bit of uh, of looking into some of the uh, special effects. Do you? Uh, can you enlighten us a little bit about some of how that worked? Yeah. Okay. So like, what I think is like super super cool is like how goddamn fucking accurate all these things they they built were right one of the things i find super cool about nasa is like how many how well documented everything is and i i I mean obviously definitely while they were making the movie they they drew upon that you know, but, like but, Al Reinhardt's movie where he went over oh, like, you know, 2000 hours of footage and transcripts. Exactly. Exactly. But um, just just to describe an idea of how accurate this this movie was. So NASA actually volunteered to allow the production to use the actual mission control, which was still intact. Wow. To really? film all the scenes. Oh, my God. However... Ron Howard had a set constructed that was so accurate that the consultants on this film did not know whether or not they filmed those scenes at the real mission control <laughs> or on a set. That's, that's pretty impressive. It's super impressive. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard like people who would like go on the set sometimes would like forget that they were on a movie set and then like go and try and find like the mission control. I mean, elevators. I would forget that on a movie set. Like after the. After Even the especially scene. considering. I mean, I would immediately forget that I'm on a movie set as soon as the fucking anti-gravity fucking kicked in. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get straight into that, because that's probably the most interesting part of all the sets on this movie. Mm -hmm. Is that a great deal of this movie was filmed in straight-up actual anti-gravity. That is maybe one of the coolest facts about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. A great deal of this movie was was filmed on what's called the Vomit Comet. Hells yeah. Which was a... Now now that's a good name. (laughs) That's a fantastic name. Instead of Friendship 7, it should have been the Vomit Comet 7. The Vomit Vomit Comet 7. (laughs) Vomit Comet 7. (laughs) Basically, it's it's, it's a modified... Boeing KC-135, which is a very large cargo jet. Actually, no, it's not a cargo jet. It's a it's a jet that's designed for in-air refueling, which itself is just a crazy idea to me. Yeah, that they insane. can actually build a jet that can do that. But I anyway, love that. It's amazing. It's it's fantastic. It is. So, what this jet does essentially for NASA is that it takes off and then flies parabolas. Yeah. And so it basically flies straight up and then straight down. And so Yeah, it's like a forty five degree angle. They just yeah. they just they get to max speed and then they just cut the engines. Yeah, let it go so for twenty three seconds. Yeah. Just falling. So when the plane is moving down at the same speed as the terminal velocity of the people inside it, you actually get actual weightlessness. Yeah. Actual zero gravity. And so, basically, what they did was they built a segment of the the uh, the set inside of this 
plane, which was lent to them by NASA because NASA was apparently very impressed by the professionalism of Ron Howard that they were just like, yeah, now we're going to we're going to help you out here. And so they lent them this plane and they built this set inside of it, uh, which allowed them to do 26 second sequences of actual zero gravity filming. Yeah, when mm-hmm. I when I first read that um you it only created like 27 seconds of of weightlessness. My first thought was like, oh, "Okay, so they used that for like some of the the shots and other shots were special effects uh, or like digital effects or whatever." But no. Uh, there there's very little digital effects in this. Movie. Yeah. But yeah, that shocked me that they were they were actually able to get so much footage of like usable scenes yeah. that don't they don't seem rushed you know and like yeah 27 no. second shots i mean i'm sure all the actors were just elated to be doing this despite vomiting as as felix has pointed yeah. out that he thinks bill paxton did because of this yeah <laughs> i mean that's well have you ever seen there's there's some footage of uh commercial kind of flights that you can you can you can i think at this point you can kind of pay to go on to your your way onto the vomit comet and and check it out um and there's some video of inside it it's pretty interesting it's it's really weird to see the inside of a plane without any seats or anything like that but it's just yeah, basically absolutely. it's just like a long tube right um but i mean one thing you don't think about but it obviously makes a lot of sense the whole thing is like padded to the nines on every single wall yeah yeah <laughs> What I find really impressive about this is that, like, they set up a shot in zero G. Like, holding a fucking camera and keeping it fixed and keeping all the actors fixed when essentially there's nothing to stop them from moving is fucking preposterous. Did, Did you? Despite, like, how fucking difficult it must have been to, like, not only build a like a whole set with all these switches and things like that which were amazingly accurate but unfortunately you can actually kind of tell in some of the scenes that like oh really they weren't filming some of them in zero g and you can see that they filmed them kind of shoulders up right yeah. okay i was wondering about because that. obviously it would have been completely just too much work to do everything in zero g yeah that's a, yeah so you kind of see how um ron howard was pretty smart about what he figured he could and couldn't shoot in zero g right, right. And, and the interesting thing is like he was uh originally when he started doing this movie he didn't even think about like how are we going to do this in zero g yeah, yeah how are we going to make zero g look right he didn't even think about that allegedly huh so yeah. I think... apparently he was talking to Steven Spielberg about this because I don't know I don't know what I guess Steven Spielberg knows a lot about movie making <laughs> maybe uh... <laughs> nah but, um so he was thinking like oh maybe we'll shoot it underwater or something and then Steven Spielberg suggested hey you know there's this thing where jets fly parabolas and then and then they figured out that they could uh, get with nasa and that nasa could uh, uh, provide the kc-135 so it was spielberg who uh put uh howard on the right track it was it was indeed thank you well, spielberg. i don't know if maybe spielberg was planning on making some kind of zero g thing yeah maybe <laughs> i'd like to see that yeah but uh, yeah so 
it's crazy how much effort they put into this movie to get every fucking thing about the set right. Like, uh, Canadian legend Chris Hadfield described this as possibly the most accurate of all the space movies. But yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, just the detail of the sets. Oh, it's like it's unreal. It's, I mean, it's not. They're not even sets. It's just like you know. Actual... They basically duplicated the simulator. Yeah, they're like, yeah, exactly. So, like, one of the cool things is I noticed, like, um, the control panel they have, they have this, uh, this, this uh, thing in it with a screen on it, and it has a bunch of buttons on it. It's called the the disky, which is sort of the, the it, which stands for display and keyboard, and it uh, it's the interface for the Apollo guidance computer. And you see them actually interacting with, with a lot. Uh, and I actually, I, 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 I kn- the recreation of the disky is actually really, really accurate, except for one tiny little detail. What's that? What is it? And, and that is like, you can clearly see if you look at the screen of the disky that, uh, that they used a seven segment LED display, which has sort of a black background and green text. When I look at it, I clearly see that. Sorry? No, I was making fun of you. Like, I can't clearly see that when I look at it. Well, no, but if you actually look at the photos from Apollo... Right. If, if the, you're comparing them. The screen has kind of a, a bright green font on top of a sort of gray background because it, it actually used a high-voltage electroluminescent display. A high-voltage which? Electroluminescent display. That's the real huh. one. That's what they actually used, which is actually kind of interesting, because you'll notice in this film they talk about uh, they're worried about the short-circuit potential because of the condensation yeah. of the control panel. And yeah. one of the reasons for that is because of the, the high-voltage display that they used. Hmm. Yeah, support a lot of a lot of weird design choices. Well, one of the reasons is because, like, obviously, I don't think a seven segment LED display was something that they could have put together in no. the year nineteen seventy when Apollo 11, Apollo thirteen actually launched. Right. Yeah. Sure. So, but a lot of the decisions they were that were made were being made because that was the only way that they could have figured out how to do it. You know? Yeah, I suppose that's true. So another interesting prop bit is there's a there's a scene where uh, Jim Lovell's dreaming while he's sleeping on Apollo 13. He's dreaming of of actually landing on the moon. Right. And and you can see in that scene that it's a really nice touch that the helmet that he's wearing you can see that it has an anchor, a blue anchor on it, and a, a navy, uh, pair of navy flight uh, wings on it. Okay. And, and that was an exact replica of the helmet that that Jim Lovell actually brought with him for landing on the moon, even though they didn't land on the moon and nobody ever saw that. Wow. Uh. That, that's a fun it's, it's like Easter egg. Really crazy. Little is the whole is the whole anchor thing to reflect the fact that space is technically international waters? Well, it was it was to it was basically based on the fact that uh, Jim Lovell had been in the Navy and was a Navy ace pilot. 
Oh, I prefer my explanation. <laughs> and and you can actually see that he's wearing a ring, uh, a ring which is a Naval Academy ring, which which Tom Hanks wears in pretty much every scene. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, which, it's like once again they really didn't need to put that in there but no nobody would have known <laughs> nobody would have noticed if it wasn't there i appreciate those little attentions to detail that's like excellent i think uh, i think they were thinking design. specifically of us making a podcast you know <laughs> 25 years down the line <laughs> this is somebody something somebody could really do a deep dive on you know all the details we're getting right yeah they knew a bunch of nerds want to talk about it later yeah yeah, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and so another another interesting thing is like one thing that they got like super accurate was when they put together the uh the uh the carbon dioxide filter where they put it together with duct tape and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, human ingenuity. So they bring out these two props which looks just so perfectly to describe what they're supposed to be doing. They're saying we got to put a uh, a square peg in a round hole and they bring up these two things which look exactly like that. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe that, like, the actual pro, like, the actual device looks so much like the thing they're trying to describe in the movie. Really? Yeah. Like, thing, yeah. They, the thing they and, built uh, in. And again, with the, the thing, it's, uh, they use duct tape to put it together, and every single mission since Apollo. Every single NASA mission has to carry a roll of duct tape. <laughs> I mean, this is a true fact, and it probably saved their lives on Apollo. Yeah, that's fantastic. yeah. No, it's I mean, it's a great idea. Duct tape is, you know, it's probably one of mankind's greatest creations. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so useful. The stuff you can do with it. Yeah. I've kind of started to think, you know, if you think about it, the the movie. Uh, and think about all that went into it and all that was done in the filming of it, you know, five, six hundred rides on uh, a zero-G plane, and you think of all the cast that's involved and how star-studded is. You've got Tom Hanks, you've got Kevin Bacon, you've got Ed Harris, etc., you know? you got all these guys. You Bill know, Paxton. Bill Paxton, etc. That... What do you think the budget is for the movie? You might already know it, but you know what? What do you think it cost them to make this movie? A lot of money. Do you care to guess? I I know it. Now I'm looking at it right now, but yeah. What's your guess as what as to what it is? Okay. What is my guess? In yeah. in 1995, how much money did it cost them? Yeah. Sixty million. It's it's fifty two million, which I mean sixty oh, million. Oh, price was... is right. I went over. Yeah, but still, that's that's not like that's not cheap. It's not cheap, but yeah. I mean, I don't think that's that high though. If you think about it, no, no, because um, I'm sure NASA was was really cooperative. Yeah, other films at the well, time that, cost the... well over a hundred million dollars. Like it's a exactly yeah. Mission Impossible and etc. Yeah, but, so. But that gets me thinking. So obviously, you know, I don't think NASA charged them for the zero G. And you you kind of start looking at all these things that fell into place for this movie. This is a movie that people really wanted to make. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt 
There's no oh, doubt yeah. in my mind that Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon didn't take pay cuts to be in this movie because they thought it was awesome. There's yeah, no way I mean, they could have had this star-studded cast. fucking zero gravity. Yeah, there's no way they could have had this star-studded cast on this budget, you know, without a lot of cooperation by everybody yeah. involved. Yeah. I mean, I'll be, the movie made and, a lot I of mean, money Presumably in the end, Ron but... Howard saved money by casting his family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's just interesting to me. It's, you know, looking at the cast and, and looking at all that went into it and looking at $52 million, it's like something doesn't add up there, but it, it's I think it's just the, the passion involved and and, you know, it's not like you have to pay me to be involved in this. It's like... I, I'll do anything to be in this movie, you know. Oh yeah, like, yeah for, we, for we Tom Hanks for sure. I think that was the case. I think. Yeah, I yeah, think he no, would have no, that sure. movie for free, probably. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Just the fact that he got to like talk to the astronauts like one on one, like have such a conversation with Jim Lovell. Yeah, but he yeah, yeah he spent a lot of time because like with one Jim of the Lovell. things that Jim Lovell talks about in in his commentary is like like working with tom hanks and like trying to get uh get that um relationship going so that he could like emulate him yeah perfectly like i mean actually another thing that that they were super accurate about for reasons that like because you wouldn't have expected them to even bother with this but uh when they film inside the level household Apparently, they'd actually gone in there with a camera crew to, to document what the entire house looks like and duplicate that. Really? I, I heard they uh, yeah. they poured over like old family photos and stuff to like get an yeah. idea of what the house looked like and uh. And wow. there were like plaques that they that uh, that um, Jim Lovell had that they they duplicated and they took like magazine covers that had pictures of Jim Lovell on them and replaced them with pictures of Tom Hanks. Huh. <laughs> And interviews that Jim Lovell did and, re- like, redid them with Tom Hanks. Yeah, huh. and, like, Tom Hanks obviously was, like, uh, led the charge of being, like, just so invested in the actual, like, concept and, like, yeah. uh, story and the all the details. But, like, he was, Although like... I, be- I believe that uh, specifically a lot of the, uh, a lot of the consultants were very, very impressed with Ed Harris. Yeah, well, uh, that's what I was going to say. Not specifically about Ed Harris, but I was just going to say, like, the rest of the cast, every like, NASA uh, experts or uh, uh, controllers would say that it's, like, yeah, it's super impressive. Like, everyone uh, who worked as an actor in, like, the mission control room, like, uh, studied hundreds of hours of, of transcripts, and, like, they all took, like, crash courses in, like, physics and et cetera, like... Um, to prepare and they all like uh like everybody involved was just super detail oriented i think that's like one of the main factors yeah. that pulls this film together so well and like makes it feel yeah, so definitely. Uh, immersive yeah so which is why i find one of the super interesting things is that like one of the challenges ron howard must have had was deciding what to show the audience to convey the story despite basically not writing any new material yeah it's good. yeah so i mean uh, uh basically like they're i can't remember who said this i think it was uh tom hanks that was basically saying like you're essentially speaking a foreign language to these uh to the audience but somehow you have to convey the what's actually going on in the story yeah, the, yeah. like the human aspect of it 
exactly what, what these words Despite, mean. Yeah, and they really delivered. <laughs> and I think they do a fantastic they job. They do. They really do. Um, Marilyn Lovell. Um, yeah, talked about how a lot of like she would listen to like NASA broadcasts when uh, Jim was on missions because they had like a radio in their house that you could you could listen to all the all the transmissions. Um, um, and she would say she like she didn't understand you know ninety five percent what they're saying, but she wasn't listening to like their words. She was listening for like the tone, and this is like put in like this is a quote like the tone. Apparently, it was like a, a very specific like way that she learned to read how uh, how serious the situation was based on 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 the their tone. And um, mm. I think I think that was something that uh, the actors took like really in consideration they really kind of nailed that oh definitely they That's nailed it like actually uh Marilyn Lovell was was talking about this she was saying like every time she looks at that movie and like the performance of Kathleen Quinlan who plays her it, she says it, it it takes her right back to that launch and like worrying about whether or not Jim Lovell was going to come home yeah. yeah I imagine I can't imagine what it must be like for like a uh jim lovell and all the other people who are actually involved to like watch that movie it must be pretty bizarre experience yeah Mm -hmm. although from what i gather they all really like the movie yeah the one thing i do find interesting um that i there's there's like i think there's a couple of deep like the tone overall you can always tell I mean, generally speaking, there's just a shit ton that goes wrong, and you can kind of tell whenever something goes wrong. But there's a couple of details that I kind of didn't pick up on that, I mean, are kind of subtly implied, but maybe aren't the best carried through. Like, for example, Fred Hayes uh, is supposed to be developing a kidney infection the entire time, and is he has a UTI. I mean, you get the, mm. the fact that he, it hurts to pee, but... Yeah, but like but he's I was just like oh he probably has hypothermia right yeah and then it's just like no he had a U- he had a UTI and a kidney infection it's like I that that was not really communicated to me yeah, yeah. I'm sure they weren't sure about that when they were actually on the yeah I, I mean maybe not and that's interesting like that speaks kind of to to what Jake was saying about like what Ron Howard chose to show to convey uh, the yeah, story. like that's not really that in- important in the sk- grand grand scheme. Yeah, thing. yeah, not yeah. really. And he conveyed but, the uh, fact that yeah. he was unwell, I guess. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple like, things I mean, like when when they're talking about the oxygen depletion. At some point, they just stop talking about the fact that the oxygen in the uh, in the service module has been like depleting, and then they just kind of switch to talking about something else. And it's, it doesn't really matter when you're watching the movie, like. All right, so this this thing's happening. The next yeah. thing, you know, the exact scheme of when they're, you know, they never let you know that they ran out of oxygen in the service module. You just kind of so in the in the serv- the command module, you mean command service module, command service module, yeah, module, yeah, because yeah. they they migrate into the uh, the the lunar module, lunar, the, yeah, the which has its own the, uh, which has its own oxygen um, supply. But that's kind of something that you know. I guess in in the in the scheme of things, when when you're just trying to narratively follow you, to, I mean, you know, 
you're you're just following them as they go. It's something that they dealt with, and then they, you know, in real time, they stopped worrying about that once they moved to the lunar module. So you stopped worrying about it as well when you were watching the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, I think there's a great quote from Jim Lovell about this, where basically he says, like, you know, when you're in this kind of situation, you never think about the odds. You just think about how to improve them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's interesting. But yeah, so I don't know. They they really fucking nailed this, in my opinion. Yeah, great movie, I think. So now that we've touched on what they got right, let's talk a little bit because I'm a little a little crazy about this. Some might call what you a stickler. Some might call you a stickler. I'm a bit of a stickler. I'm a bit yeah. of a stickler. Well, I, I, for one, I mean, I know you've got your list, but uh, I think I brought this up earlier. They got the color of Jim Lovell's Corvette wrong. Yeah, unforgivable. That is unforgivable. It's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Howard <laughs> like also said, invited us to podcast. Yeah, Ron Howard. Wait, Ron Howard, you're invited. So, I mean, I will say that, like, for most of the changes that they did, the 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 departures from fact, as it were, I can see a reason why they did it. Right. Like generally, they 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 changed these for artistic reasons to try to make it more interesting to watch. Flow is a more cohesive story. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I mean, I will start with the biggest thing that I think they got wrong, or that was not true. Okay. Okay. Is that in the movie, they kind of imply that they are making up this uh, plan by the seat of their pants. They're saying, oh, oh shit, what the hell are we going to do? Why don't we try using the, the lunar module as a, uh, as a lifeboat? Right, okay. But in reality, that eventuality had actually been planned for. Right. Yeah. It- so they had actually done rehearsals to try to use the lem as a lifeboat. Yeah, it's called a lifeboat protocol. Had they just had they just not Sorry, Jake, was, what were you saying, Felix? So, but had they just not thought it up properly and that they forgot that the lem was only designed for two people? Sorry? The lifeboat protocol where they're supposed to use it as a lifeboat, had they just forgotten was it just not well designed? Because I know the the jerry rigging of the the carbon scrubbers did happen, right? The CO2 scrubbers that did right. happen. So, so did but that just... was actually that was not quite part of this. They did have to do that, but that the situation did deviate slightly from the protocol. In the uh, in in the Lost Moon, they do talk about that protocol. Um, and yeah. they talk about it with kind of like it may be like in retrospect, um, but they talked about it in kind of like a, the uh, a tone of like it, they didn't take it very seriously. You know, they didn't they, right. they were like doing it, but they didn't think it was going to be like a real situation they would have to encounter. But I mean, had they not planned for that, and not prepared for that, there's a very good chance that this that they would not have recovered. Yeah, which the, is yeah. Well, it did seem to me like especially like the data transfer that you know, like that oh, they, that they, they did it on paper. Uh no, like transferring all the data from the one the lem the sorry the service command module to the lem that that was done so efficiently that I mean you know if you were doing that in like that 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 was definitely part of the uh, 
the lifeboat scheme. Yeah. Yeah. So they 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 definitely considered that they would actually do this. Yeah. So it it, it was not totally something that they made up on the but, spot. But but then that brings me to question again: if if they already had a lifeboat protocol involving the lem. Why did they not design the lem to be able to sustain three people's oxygen levels? No, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. Well, I assume it's because they they only meant for you know the mission to take only design these specific things. In fact, they have the engineer in the movie from 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 Grumman come in and talk about oh, just make it clear that these are only designed for this. Right. right. Because it, it like getting to the moon is hard enough that they, I figure they they only designed the uh, the the module to to do it only exactly what they needed to. However, NASA had enough foresight to practice for eventualities that would require them to do things like use the LEM as a lifeboat. Right. Right. Because they always imagined what's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Right. While they're training. They had, they had partial foresight, at least. Yeah, they were they were as diligent as I guess they could have been with the timeline that they were kind of forced into working in. Yeah. Right. So, but I mean, even if the uh, even if the the astronauts weren't a hundred percent practiced with the protocol, at least the engineers had considered that, and the commands, the uh, mission control staff were very familiar with it. Okay. That's interesting to note, for sure. Yeah. Um, so that is sort of the biggest uh, inaccuracy. I, I would say another sort of inaccuracy is is the portrayal of Jack Swaggart. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if Jack Swaggart was actually sort of a ladies' man or philanderer. But I would definitely say I think Jim Lovell seemed to think so. Right. Because <laughs> what it says, again, like, uh, in The Lost Moon is, like, he he obviously, he got that um, uh, reputation initially just because he was the only uh, unmarried astronaut in the program. Right. Um, which, in you know, in that time, if you're if you're unmarried, you're uh, at almost forty. You're a you're a right a, a horn dog. Um, exactly. Designated. And, Designated. Horn yeah, and uh, and uh, again, Jim Lovell says our our. Uh, uh, yeah, he, Jim says he always had a lot of girlfriends. Well, yeah, J- I don't know. Uh, they might have said that in the Lost Moon, but basically, he they said like, yeah, I don't, we don't know how true that reputation was, but Jim Swaggart uh, definitely tried to perpetuate it. Right. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, I I definitely think that the Jack Swagger is not necessarily portrayed as well as I think he possibly could have in this movie. Right. I think the idea. Is that uh, as 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 Jim puts it, Ron wanted to have a subplot where Jack Swagger earns his wings, as it were. Yeah, that's right. I think probably one of the largest creative licenses they take is kind of inserting that tension and that exactly. Plot line. Yeah. So, for no. example, there's an argument on on the spacecraft uh, where they 
where where Jack thinks like, oh, the 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 math is wrong. We're not actually going to survive the the um, the reentry. And uh, and and Tom Hanks has this line about, uh, oh, we can't be bouncing off the walls. We gotta and have the same problems we started with. We gotta put our heads together and figure this out. And while I actually think that's a great scene, it's unfortunately completely made up. Right. Yeah, it is a great scene. So in reality, the uh, the astronauts were just so goddamn focused on like doing all the things they needed to do because they're goddamn fucking professionals that there was virtually no disagreement between them. Yeah. 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 No, I mean they definitely did portray it a bit of as like a, a cliquey cat fight for like a, yeah. a decent amount of the movie. And the interesting thing is there's a uh, there's a bit that they do in the simulator where they are they're doing re-entry and they and, and Jack Swagger screws up the uh the re-entry simulation yeah, comes in too hot and kills them so in fact what the astronauts were actually worried about was not that particular maneuver but actually the docking between the LEM and the uh and the command module when it was coming up from the moon. Right. Right. Because well, in that particular situation, Jack Swagger would have been alone in the command module. Yeah. Yeah. And he wouldn't have had anybody to back him up, and that's what they were particularly worried about. Right. Right. But apparently this the decision was made to show that maneuver because it would have had all three of them sitting in the cabin, which would have been better for cinematic purposes. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. That's that's a change I'll accept. Yeah. So, as I was saying, like most of the changes in this movie were done because it made more sense as a movie and it made it more interesting. Yeah. So generally, I think there was a there was a a tendency to dramatize what happened. I have a, yeah. I have a story about that. You may have it here, so. Um, uh, but the, uh, the scene, the scene, um, when he, uh, goes to Maryland and is like, uh, cause they had summer plans to go to Acapulco and, um, yeah, they had, uh, they had plans. Uh, he was like, so I'm thinking of like a change of destination and she's like, what? But we've already made the plans. And he's like, uh, how about the moon or whatever? Like that, that interaction did actually occur. Like they did have that conversation, mm-hmm. and he did say that, but it was actually about Apollo eight and not about Apollo. 13. Yeah, oh, that's pretty yeah. funny because it makes sense in the context of the movie that they because they got bumped up, right? But uh, yeah, now that that that's so I mean, it's like it's know. interesting that it is like it's still a true fact that just kind of like yeah moved it. So, around I mean a that bit. that's a lot a bit of a of white what, lie. A lot of the the inaccuracies of this movie are like that. Yeah, right. they're kind of like they're just like a little bit kind of uh, bending the truth, or you know, not totally being honest, but not actually yeah. misrepresenting something entirely. Yeah. So the next bit is actually not an inaccuracy, but something that I thought was so interesting, but kind of didn't really get brought up that much in the film. Okay. Is that. Um, Jim Lovell was living in Houston. He had his house in Houston, but a lot of the scenes actually happened in Cape Canaveral, in Florida. Right. Uh-huh. And the interesting thing is that 
Jim Lovell actually flew back and forth between Cape Canaveral and Houston in what is essentially a fighter jet. Yeah, they do. They, there, there is a that that does happen in the movie at one point, but that's interesting because I that was definitely out of place in the movie when that happened. That he was just flying. Yeah, there. Uh, yeah, that's interesting to, to 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 learn though. So, but there is actually a scene where he he flies the uh, the plane over the house, and uh, according to Jim Lovell, the the plane the the plane is coming in much lower than it would have actually done. Yeah, I don't think to he'd be, be a allowed to for it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think you'd be allowed to fly that low. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, another thing is um, the bit about the press being really concerned about the number 13. Yeah. Is that while Marilyn particularly was really concerned and did not care for the fact that the flight was number 13. And I think there's a really great line in this film where... Uh, where uh, Tom Hanks is like, well, 13, it comes after 12. Yeah, that is a great, a great line. Um, in reality, the the press, uh, which asks the question at the press conference in the movie about, are you worried about that this happens exactly at 13, at 1300 hours or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah which yeah. is actually, in fact, when the flight launched. Yeah, the true fact. 1313. The, yeah. the, the press was not that... Uh, inquisitive about that really and actually bill paxton allegedly improvised the bit about bringing a pig with them really yeah (laughs) so another thing is uh there's a scene where marilyn loses her wedding ring yeah yeah they they just don't they just that's just just an isolated scene it's it's a really well the idea is it's a bad omen yeah for the launch yeah right so while she did actually drop her wedding ring while taking a shower, yeah, she wasn't staying at a motel. She was staying at a beach house, and <laughs> the ring got caught in the uh, the the stop at the bottom, and she was able to recover it, which uh, okay. she did not in the film. Okay, also... although she she did consider it a bad omen and she was rather shaken by it right right i also was a little bit i was a bit uh peeved at that scene and then she was just like clawing at the grate. i'm <laughs> yeah. like can't you see that there's screws holding this down like you're well, just I mean, clawing at this piece of metal yeah it's supposed like, to be frantic yeah. but i do understand i kind of have, honestly have the same kind of thoughts just like, like get a screwdriver lady like <laughs> well, can't you see that it's this probably is lost at that point <laughs> But I mean, luckily, Marilyn Lovell did not lose her uh, wedding right. ring, and she still has it to this day. And in fact, uh, they actually apparently modified uh, Jim Lovell's glove on his spacesuit to accommodate for his wedding ring. Oh, ah. interesting. Uh, so another bit is that is inaccurate. Is I'm sorry, I just got to keep harping on this. No, that's fine. I gotta, I got I gotta be a stickler about this. Stickler. We gotta find the truth here. Um, the during the launch the you can see the sort of standoffs that are keeping the rocket straight they come off one by one yeah but in yeah. reality they they all separated at the same time right. it's more dramatic uh, if they come off one by one though exactly exactly yeah. yeah um so an interesting thing that is true 
although it wasn't necessarily obvious in the film, is that there's a line where Jack Swigger talks about forgetting to file his taxes. Yeah. And yes. he kind of plays it off like a joke. Yeah. But that actually happened. Yeah. I did actually read about that. I thought that was Yeah, funny. he actually did oh. forget to file his taxes, and Nixon did call in to say that he gave him an exception. Yeah, for being out of the country. Apparently that exactly. wasn't just a joke. I was I was leaning that up, I was like, really? That wasn't all just a like an ad lib joke? All right. Sh- no, sure. It, it actually yeah. happened. Well, yeah. Yeah. speaking yeah. of ad lib joke, um, the line where that guy is like, uh, that's no joke. Go get him for that. Um, mm. That was that was Glenn Howard who, who said that line. Ron Howard's oh, brother. Oh, he had lived that? Yeah, and he had lived that line because he, apparently he had had some tax troubles in his in his Really? <laughs> he had lived that line. <laughs> nice. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So, continuing to uh, to pick this to movie nitpick. apart. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the gas was spilling out of the lunar module sorry not the lunar module but out of the uh, command service module a little bit faster than they showed in the movie uh jim like exactly when the uh when the explosion happens you can see some gas come off from the the uh the command service module but the gas was actually coming out much faster than the movie shows and 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 jim Jim Lovell describes it like a garden hose. He said it formed a sphere around the spacecraft so much that they actually had trouble seeing the stars. Right. There was mention of that, but yeah, that that's uh, that it was that fast is kind of interesting. Also, I mean, to think about the fact that it was... Um, like, there was obviously the initial ignition of the oxygen that caused the uh, the the bursting of of the pressurized oxygen tanks but that there wasn't a subsequent fire was pretty lucky honestly yeah yeah um yeah, for sure i mean i believe that a lot of that has to do with all the fireproofing that they did after the apollo one right fireproofing everything yeah okay so there's a scene in this movie where uh where where, where tom hanks takes off his is biomed sensors yeah. Yes. And he says that uh, he doesn't want the whole world to see his uh, his uh, organs functioning. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so, in reality, he told Mission Control that he wanted to take it off to save power. In quotes. Mm. However, in reality, he says afterwards that he didn't want everybody to know how scared he was. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Yeah, I would. I, yeah. I, I actually meant it's to, a medical mutiny. Yeah, I meant to. I meant to bring this up. Um, uh, it, it's really bizarre to me. This may have been. I don't want. Wouldn't want to say it was one of my problems with the film, but it's just kind of like weird that they chose to like demonize medical officer like throughout the whole movie. They kind of like yeah. They like the whole measles thing, the whole like that bit, and like they just. Right. Well, I think one of the reasons is because I don't think Jim Lovell was very happy about it, and he was one of the main sources for this movie. No, yeah, he was. Right. But even even in, I think that's why it was. Even in the Lost Moon, though, um, they don't really. It's not like I mean, I guess because it's a movie, they had to like um, uh, personify like uh something for them to direct that kind of irritation towards i guess but 
Yeah, in the book. And actually, another example of that is the uh, the Grumman engineer that comes in and says, like, yeah, oh, exactly. you know, I don't know if we should be doing this with the the lunar module. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like he gets kind of a bad rap as well. Yeah, be- well, he gets a re- they they just basically portray him as a coward. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. they portray him as like someone who only cares about like the reputation of his company. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, in reality, the, the, the Grumman people were were very very cooperative. Right. Northrop Grumman, I assume. Sorry. And I assume it's the same company of the now Northrop Grumman. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So the second last inaccuracy I have, I'm very much almost done. <laughs> Is that the the fu- there? There's a couple inaccuracies with the final burn that they do with the lunar module to 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 get close to reentry, right? To reorient their course, right, right. And so the first one is that uh, during the final burn, the uh, the movie shows them thrusting the towards the Earth. However, yeah. in reality, they were actually thrusting perpendicular to the Earth. Because they didn't want to come in faster, they wanted to change the angle. Yeah, I thought that didn't make any sense when I was watching it. Yeah, so I what thought they if actually anything, they might want to slow the themselves down. But yeah, you. And so it. the interesting thing is that uh, had they actually been thrusting towards the Earth, oh, made it worse. You wouldn't have actually been able to see the Earth in the window for the, the lunar module because the the window was kind of on the side of the lunar module. Oh. Interesting. So you wouldn't have seen the Earth in the window if you were thrusting towards the Earth. Huh. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess Ron Howard changed that for cinematic reasons. Yeah. I mean, basically, everything uh, that we've uh, brought up so far falls under the umbrella of what we've been talking about in terms of just, like, little white lies to, you know, we got to remember is a yeah. Hollywood film. Like, I want to reiterate, this movie is one of the most accurate, like, historical movies I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah of a dramatization that's not, like really yeah. yeah so like there are some inaccuracies but generally generally anything if you're gonna ask whether or not something happened in this movie chances are it's true yeah but with that one of the changes they made was that the the burn that they were talking about on this uh lasted for only 14 seconds whereas in the movie it lasted for 39 seconds <laughs> that's a pretty big and, difference honestly that is a huge difference yeah but uh ron howard wanted to draw it out to add more tension right right makes sense makes and sense. so the final inaccuracy i have is that there's a scene <laughs> where uh jim lovell sort of hugs fred hayes because fred hayes is getting the chills and he wants to warm him up yeah but oddly oddly enough there was there was a lot of detail uh, from from Jim Lovell about how this hug actually happened. <laughs> really? Strange. Yeah. So strangely enough, according to Jim Lovell, this was not a front hug, but actually a hug from behind. Okay. A reach around hug. It was a reach around. <laughs> <laughs> Very intimate. Yeah. It was yeah. So he he did in fact want to warm up um, Fred Hayes because Fred Hayes was not not doing well as we know. Uh, but it it was not a, a, a face-to-face hug. It was a hug from behind. Oh, I would also assume the hug lasted for longer than it did, because I don't think him rubbing his back for all of five seconds <laughs> yeah. would have done much. Yeah, I, 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 was, I, honestly... I mean, it might have been more effective from the rear. 
Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ten times more effective. Uh, oh my god. Um, I did also. I was. I found kind of interesting. You're watching the movie, and it's like it's clear that this guy is like really suffering, and by and large, they kind of just like they somewhat acknowledge his suffering, but they're. It's basically the vibe is like. We don't have time for this, right? And yeah. To, to be fair, realistically, they don't. It's like, I mean, I'm sorry if you're, if you're like, have hypothermia or a kidney infection, but we still need you to hold like, you know, the the core straight while we perform this burn. Otherwise, we're all gonna die. It's like yeah. exactly. You know, <laughs> like I may, was saying, like you may be pretty little... much out of commission, but you're literally yeah. our only option. Like, imagine the pressure. Yeah. You you don't think about the odds. You just think about how to improve them. So, yeah, that's uh, what I have with the inaccuracies. Very, very accurate movie. I want to be clear. Yeah, th- those I'm just a seem, none of those seemed very glaring. Yeah, like, uh, again, it's all, all innate of, of, of uh, just slightly pushing the story more into an actual narrative uh, fit for a Hollywood movie. Exactly. I do find interesting... Uh... Though the like, if you're gonna change the burn time to make it more dramatic, why 39 seconds? It's oddly specific. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good I question. If it has actually, some personal significance to Ron Howard <laughs> or Tom Hanks. What would it Maybe, be? I don't know. <laughs> you'd think you'd just go to like a minute, right? You yeah. know, if you wanted to just make it longer. A minute might just be too it's long. It's possible that they just wanted to film it in real time, and that the it just took them 39 seconds to film it. Right. Apollo Control, Houston. Um, this rapid exchange of conversation you've heard, uh, may the main B bus uh, is off the line. Uh, fuel cells one and three also off the line. Uh, fuel cell two is presently on the line. We now show 13 at an altitude of 178,643 nautical miles. We're at 56 hours, 12 minutes into the flight. 13 Houston, uh, we see you getting close to gimbal lock there. We'd like you to uh, bring up all quad C's on main A, quad C1, C2, C3, C4 on main A, and also bring B3 and B4 up on main A. Thirteen Houston, you read? Yeah, we got it. Over. Okay, can you tell us anything about the venting? Uh, okay. Where it's coming from? Uh, what window you see it at? It's coming out of window one right now, Jack. And uh, could you give me the thrusters again? Okay, the thrusters. Uh, what what uh, button? We'd like uh, on main A. We'd like Charlie one, two, three, and four. Also, Bravo 3 and 4 on main A. Okay, got it. I believe it's time to move on to uh, the truth. The truth. The what? Um, Sorry, the what? The, the, the truth? Put on the sunglasses.
so welcome to the truth is out there this is the section of the podcast where we find some story but the production of the film which is in some kind of question and we get to the bottom of it and we find out the truth mm, i'm excited so keaton i believe uh i believe we have something today for us regarding the famous line i could eat the ass off a dead rhinoceros <laughs> as delivered by great actor of our generation bill paxton i don't mm. believe he's of our generation well of a generation so my guess my guess before we get into this is that the actual quote is that it was he could eat the ass off of a live rhinoceros as opposed to dead <laughs> i think i think that's what well, he actually, actually said. that quote was never said in the transcript in the actual apollo mission but that's not what the truth that we're trying to find is about hmm. we're trying to find out where this line came from i hear there are some ideas of where of who originated this line can you, can okay. you enlighten me on this, Keaton? Yes, I can. So so this is a rumor that uh, I saw popping up a lot as I was looking up this movie. It's just kind of like a, a fun fact. Apparently that line was uh, was made up on the day of the shot. It wasn't, wasn't in the script. Apparently uh, the actor Gary Busey was, was on the set. Gary... Gary Busey, noted maniac. Noted maniac. Gary Busey was on the set the uh, the day. Gary Busey, by the way, you're also banned from our podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, he. It's it's rumored that it, the line was his idea, and they they gave it to him because, and they put it in the film because they thought it would give uh, give the character a little bit more of a country boy vibe, you know. Right. So from what I hear, Fred Hayes was in fact quite a jokester, but maybe not to the extent where he would have said that line. Well, I mean, I think going to the extent of uh, whatever that trigger that he was pulling to like make large bangs to just oh, start yeah. whatever, that seems a little careless. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a bigger jokester prank than, uh, you know, than the rhinoceros quote. This is true. Yeah. Um, so what can you tell us about what actually happened? Well, Gary Busey did for sure visit the Apollo 13 set. And um, he wasn't on the vomit comet, was he? Uh, not that I'm aware of. That would be interesting. But um, if... I'm sure he would have vomited. Just to hang out. If you're familiar... With um, the 1991 film Point Break, um, oh, you will be familiar. Yeah, the fantastic Patrick Swayze Keanu Reeves movie. Correct. You will be familiar with uh, the scene. Keanu Reeves, Canadian Treasure, by the way. Canadian Treasure, he's yeah. Canadian. Oh, he yeah, is. he is. Huh. Um, you learn. He. Uh, Gary Busey's character says um, says the exact same line. Um, 
that he could eat. He, he says, I could eat the asshole out of a rhinoceros. Uh, I should have got three of these when his partner tosses huh. him a hamburger. So, um, what I was curious Wait, about... Wait, so, sorry, when was Point Break? 1991. Okay, so, obviously before this. So, yeah, Gary Busey has, had said that line in a film. Now, I was curious, like, sure, that might... It could just be a coincidence, though. So, uh, like, I found a script for Point Break. Um... <laughs> Naturally. Because I wanted to know if Gary Busey ad-libbed that line. Um, because, you know, if he ad-libbed it, then it seems more likely to me... It wouldn't be in the script. Yeah, it wouldn't be in the script, and it would seem more likely to me that he would, he would um, you know, pass it on to, to, to the Apollo uh, to 13 Paxton, crew. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we know Bill Paxton did ad-lib the bit about bringing a pig on board. So yeah. we know he, he was not against ad-libbing. Yeah. So so what I did find after reading the Point Break script is that the line is sort of written down in the film, but it's written as elephant's asshole as opposed to rhinoceros. So Gary Busey... But made- that was too crass. That was too crass. So Gary Busey mm. made the creative decision to change it from elephant's asshole to rhinoceros asshole. Um, right. So take what you will from that. But that are we sure that like you know, um, Bill Paxton hadn't just watched Point Break like the previous evening and like just had that in his head and confused <laughs> the two lines? It is true that Gary Busey was on set. So right. So it's, it's he had I mean, every opportunity, and it. And, I mean. I think it's probably it's the, the decision was probably made because Gary Busey was on set, but I don't know if it's his suggestion or just you know someone being like, oh yeah, Gary Busey, point of break. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, right. I'll rip off that one. Right, right, right. So you think? Do you know what I think? What do you think? Okay. I think that Gary Busey was on set, and I think that he was hanging out with Bill Paxton, and I think. You know, Gary Busey was like, yo, Bill Paxton, you ever seen this movie? I was in Point Break. And then they go and see Point Break. And then right. Bill Paxton is like, oh my god, this is hilarious. My theory, my new theory is that uh, Gary Busey was on set and he was waiting for the, uh, you know, the the lunch on set. Yeah. And he got delayed. And so Gary Busey was like, I'm going to say my signature line. <laughs> And then he and then he said it, and Bill Paxton's like, "You know what? You're right." Actually, was this line said inside the vomit comet? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Or so because I was thinking, if it, if if it was said inside the vomit comet, that would uh, reduce the chances that that uh, he was actually on set. Do we know for a fact that he was on set? Uh, yeah, uh, he, well, anecdotally. Right. Um, it's not, I didn't find, like, you know, uh, anything besides people saying, like, yeah, he was on set, and Tom Hanks saying right. he was on set, and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, well, it seems like he was on set then. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, I still feel like Bill Paxton said it subconsciously. Subconsciously? I don't think he did it on purpose. Yeah. Subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said it, but like not on purpose. Right. It just it came from the ether. This Gary Busey he had, energy. He, was, uh, he spent too much time with Gary Busey. <laughs> yeah. Incepted by Gary Busey. Yeah. Just, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I'd buy that. Yeah. I'd buy yeah, that. I do buy that, yeah. I, so is that it? Have we found the truth? We did. We just... I mean, I kind of like the idea. <laughs> did we find it? <laughs> I kind of like the idea that Gary Busey's just roaming around and that's just his catchphrase whenever he's hungry. Yeah. <laughs> he just says it as much as humanly possible. You know, I could eat the ass off a of dead yeah. rhinoceros. I, I, I do feel like that would be something he says, like, at, before every meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he was like describing like the eating uh, of of the space food, like from the 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 food plastic bags that they have of like similar to eating the ass of a red rhinoceros. Because Gary Busey would know. <laughs> so is that the truth? I think that's the truth. I mean, probably not, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, admittedly, that's a little bit of a th- of a, a thin the truth. Yeah, yeah. The 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 truth question mark. Yeah, exactly. The truth. The truth. Maybe. Truth. Okay, thirteen. This is Houston. Uh, we'd like you to uh, go to your uh, GNC checklist. The pink pages one uh, five. Do uh, power down until we get a delta of ten amps. Over. Apollo Control, Houston. Um, that last report from uh, Lausma asked the uh, 13 crew to reduce the electrical load on the, the spacecraft. Very open. Not the big pages, the one dash fire. Okay, uh, we'd like you to uh, go down that power down procedure until you get a delta of 10 amps. Over. All right, you're staying. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, Will. And, uh, you copy our uh, power down request? All right, Jack, we're, uh, uh, yeah, we're right now. Where did you say that was located, Jack? That's in your uh, systems checklist, page 1-5. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, we repeat again that... I'd also check for those pages in your uh, launch checklist. They're uh, emergency pages, pink pages 1-5, and uh, we'd like you to power down okay, and we'll get the launch, the launch checklist check. Roger, uh, power down until you get a amperage of 10 amps, less than what you got now. Okay. Yeah, this brings on to our uh, our next segment. Is this potentially six degrees of Star Trek? Could be. Oh, no. Oh, shit, that's the wrong <laughs> soundbite. <laughs> Sorry. Miss Q, Miss Q. Is this potentially <laughs> six degrees of Star Trek? What? <laughs> Oh, 
Welcome to Six Degrees of Star Trek. This is the segment that nobody asked for, but you're we are getting, getting it anyway. anyway. I don't want it. You're getting it anyway. Too bad. Okay, I do want it. I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah, you definitely want this. Anyway, so this is the segment where we connect anybody who was in this film to Star Trek in some way through their IMDb page. This could be any piece of media in the Star Trek universe. So the first person, uh, this is a a one-degree connection, is Clint Howard. Clint Howard. Clint Howard. He's everywhere. Yeah. Clint Howard is actually really interesting. He is. Because he has not only been in one Star Trek series, he's been in four of them. Holy shit. Including the original series. What? Well, that's right. Yeah, because he was a child actor, too, as well as Ron Howard. Yes, he was. Really? So which ones was he in? So he was in TOS, and then what? He was in uh, TOS. He was in Deep Space Nine. Uh, He was in Enterprise, and he was in Discovery. Huh. Okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, So... He was in the the episode The Corbomite Maneuver. Oh, yes. Everybody's favorite episode of The Corbomite Maneuver. He plays the childlike alien Balok, who flies in in this giant spaceship, and then eventually they meet this sort of baby alien in the end, and it's it's played by Clint Howard, who is a child at the time, in 1966. All right. So he also appears in Deep Space Nine, uh, in the episode Past Tense Part Two, which is an episode where the uh, the cast of Deep Space Nine goes back in time, and they take part in this uh, semi well, this historical thing in the year twenty twenty four, I believe, called the the Bell Riots, and he plays this guy who kind of is like a. Uh, Guy who steals some shit from uh, from Captain Sisko, I believe. He plays a Ferengi in the episode Acquisition of Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, he fits. I, when you first said he was in Star Trek, my first thought was, oh, he was a Ferengi for sure. Because, like, if you look at his face, I think the most appropriate role, other than now that I've learned that he's a Ferengi, the most appropriate role he ever played was when uh, he was in How the Grinch Stole Christmas and he played a Who from Whoville. Because that seems to be what his face oh kind of lends itself to the most. Yeah. yeah Although I sure. would definitely think he, he'd be a Ferengi. He, he definitely has the love. Yeah, well, now that you've mentioned that, it seems like that's way more yeah. appropriate. And he know? also appears most recently on an episode of Star Trek Discovery as an Orion in the episode, Will You Take My Hand? You know who has hands? The devil? The devil. What does he use them for? For holding. And actually, I have another one step. Another first. Actually, day. this entire section is going to be all one steps this time because this there's a lot of crossover with this in Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> so the music for this film was composed by one James Horner. Oh yes. Who did the music for a certain film known as The Wrath of Khan? Ah. Oh. Which is generally considered to be one of the better Star Trek films. Indeed. I will die hard put my myself behind Star Trek the Motion Picture, underrated movie. 
but Wrath of Khan is pretty good too. I like the Journey Home a lot. Well, I mean, the Voyage Home is Voyage is, Home. Uh, uh, Star Trek Four is definitely one of the best. Yeah, but uh, for sure, and we might have to do a podcast on that in the future. I'm sure we will. But anyway, so the third connection, which is a one step, is Max Grodenchik. Max. Hmm. And he is unique because he's a recurring character on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Is he? This is not just somebody who's appeared. He is in many, many episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine because he plays Rom the Ferengi. Oh, really? In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, yeah. He plays one of the mission control people in this movie. You happen to know which one. Okay. Uh, I don't actually know what his name is in this movie. He's not in that many scenes. But he talks to Clint Howard. Right. That's all that we really care about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So actually, him and Clint Howard were both in Deep Space Nine. Right. Interestingly enough. So yeah. Lots of Star Trek crossover in this film. Makes sense. I mean, you know, nerds, space, space. it all. The final frontier. Yeah. I do, I do find it interesting that we're doing a Six Degrees segment about Oh, Star and not Trek. mentioning Kevin Bacon? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so Kevin Bacon is also in this movie. So this movie and... has the Kevin Bacon number of zero. Exactly. That's all it really needs to be said. This is uh, as Kevin Bacon-y as it gets, except for maybe Tremors. Ooh, Tremors is a movie that that is, that's as Kevin Bacon-y as it gets. That's an amazing film. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so do we want to all give our final thoughts? Yeah, it's time for the it's 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 time for the final thoughts. Okay, so for legal reasons, okay, this has to be a work of criticism in order for us to include audio clips as fair use. Sure. So we will make this a work of criticism by all giving our final thoughts on what we think about this movie. Keaton, would you like to start? Sure. I think this film is like, as I said at the, at the beginning, it's 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 a story that's like so so naturally dramatic um, that you don't you don't need really to change anything. But that's a challenge unto itself is like actually you know making that into a a a, a readable narrative. Um, and this movie, if I had to pick like one one word to like describe this movie, it would be expertise. Because, like, you know, from from the screenplay, Absolutely. from the screenplay being written by like journalists who are obsessed with NASA and who have looked at you know thousands of hours uh, of of footage, to like actors who were who were um, just uh, who took crash courses and who who read transcripts as well and who were mm. just super involved. It's just it's just yeah. Um, it's technically a masterpiece i think you can't really argue yeah, no, with that i definitely agree and then on absolutely yeah. and then on, on top of that they uh the performances by uh tom hanks and uh paxton and, and kev aiken are um are and uh uh, uh uh i'm blanking on his name gene gantz why am i blanking on his name Gene ed harris ed harris yeah i can't believe i, lost, I forgot his name um ed harris, yeah, all of them, of yeah. Like this. yeah yeah oh great movie <laughs> um spectacular performances and honestly, just really like it's just a, a, an entertaining movie from scene one to to till the end. It's uh, it, it's a long movie, and you you're not 
you're engaged the whole time. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nail biter. It <laughs> seems fast. Even though you know what happens, like it, it feels like it's flying. It does. By it really does. Yeah. It. Like yeah. Uh, this is, this is a. Uh, although maybe not a movie I've seen as many times, it's definitely uh, up there with uh, one of my favorite movies. I think. Yeah. Felix, you wanna go ahead and weigh in on that? Sure. Yeah. No. Uh, really enjoyed the movie. Um, I think it's. It, I kind of agree with Keaton in terms of talking about expertise. I guess kind of the way I put it is, uh, it it really shows in a lot of facets of the movie that this is like a huge passion project for so many of the people oh, yeah, absolutely. involved, and how it got made, and you know the act. Yeah, just you can tell every but you know the people that involved really really wanted to be involved with this movie, and the proper care went in and. And the passion was definitely there. Um, in terms of criticism, I mean, I don't know what all much that there is to say. I perhaps would like to dedicate my time of criticism to criticize the American public who apparently didn't want to watch the Apollo missions on TV yeah. and the ratings were yeah. terrible, so they took them off TV. They should all be ashamed yeah. of themselves for not watching it. They should. That's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, great performance. Like, how many people watched fucking uh, SpaceX Dragon take off? A, like a, a, a lot. A lot. Yeah. No, I, I, that's blows my mind. It's like, oh, we've seen this like, before. I'm like, all right. I mean, you, I didn't. <laughs> like, oh, you've oh I've seen this before twice. Okay, it's you know like, only yeah yeah it's, uh, it's I crazy saw some to me. space shuttles, but besides that, like this is um this is because you mentioned that this is just uh during the when they would have been airing like the footage from uh that uh uh Jim Lovell would have been broadcasting that they ended up not broadcasting uh and what was. What the show that was going on when they uh, actually announced that it was uh, um, it was going wrong was the was the Dick Cavett show. Yeah, which they show in this movie. Yeah, and if you if just to put a, a little bit of perspective, it, it, like what the American public wanted to see more at the time um, on the Dick Cavett show that evening was a uh, Susanna York, James Whitmore, and a few members of uh, the world champion New York Mets. Wait, that was, that the was, Mets that was what, won the World Series? World Champion New York Mets is what it says. Sorry, I've... I thought the Mets were always garbage, but never mind, continue. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, overall, I, th I think the movie, I mean, obviously you can, learning about how accurate it is, is is very impressive, and learning about a lot of the logistics of it and kind of like hidden gems, is, there's definitely like, you know, there's a rewatchability in it just in terms of, of the minutia and the detail that you could you could pick yeah. up something new every time um but i i just love yeah, how absolutely. it relays the story you know kind of in a heart, heart, heartfelt manner because you know it is such a an amazing story to start with that you i just when i watch the movie i i just i just want to be engrossed by that story and and uh and see it again i know it's amazing and like it's, absolutely and, yeah and be captured yeah. by it i don't i don't really you know it the movie is, you know, it's a vessel for the story to me as much as it is a movie in its own right, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah well absolutely. Yeah, but no, yeah, 
So I think that's that's my uh, that's my take. Yeah. So I just cannot get over how great this fucking movie is. I'm sorry. It's just like this is one of the, like the absolute fucking attention to detail that they put into this movie. Like I'm the kind of person who would like watch Star Trek and comment about how inaccurate Star Trek is. Well, that's not very hard to do. Star Trek's extremely inaccurate. <laughs> no, no, but I can't suspend my disbelief. Right. Is the point. Right. And so this movie was made for you. Exactly. <laughs> so this is a movie where I don't have to. Right. Um Yeah, so it just it's just the perfect movie for a space nerd, really, I would have to say. Yeah. It it really didn't have to fake anything. Yeah. I gotta say, if I had to watch this movie, you know, every day, I think that each one of those days would be happy days. <laughs> Hats off to you. You win. You win the podcast. You won the podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tip of the hat. That's it for the podcast this week. Thank you for listening. Me and Keaton shall return with the movie The Fog.